0: His uh, calling card, if you like, was to bite the nipples off oh, the victims. God's sake. He'd leave his teeth marks. So, so, is that how they apprehended him then? Yeah, the, yeah. The, the yeah. I mean, he, he killed a few before he was arrested. He even went back and pulled her out from wherever he'd left her so that she would be found. He says, I've just had a phone call to tell him there's a camera over her watching us now I know that's true because of uh, the job but I'm expecting them to say I don't know who you are Mm. yeah couple of sweets so everyone's looking what they mean is got a couple of police officers Mm. so them two were identified as police officers next minute the window goes in and there was tables and chairs coming through the window and it like it was like a bomb had gone off so we went outside and they're all the turkish lot were there and they're like this mm-hmm. to us you know slit your throat they brought two kilos with them this day it was in a black bin liner full of soil because they'd had it buried in case any of the houses got searched i had it in between my legs as i'm driving trying to dial a number for the office to tell them what, what's happened there's a backup team coming arrest team who don't know who I am? Oh, <laughs> so they think I'm one of the villains running off. Right. Yeah, because they haven't been briefed properly that morning. So next me, they, k- they kicked my legs. I hit the floor, broke my cheekbone, oh. and, and knocked my tooth out. He's telling me he's never thought about what he's going to do with someone, as he is with me. <laughs> Yeah, this is, this is when I make the decision to covertly retake, take me forward to conversations. Because mm. I knew the wheel was coming off with this guy. And he said, It doesn't matter who you go to speak to, they'll always side with me because that's the way the system is. Mm. And what he's been doing is he's been putting all his Masonic police officers in positions uh, in the CID. So all the fraud squad were Masons, and all the drug squad were. And John Stalker says to him, they are the only people i can trust so again it shows you the corruptness within gmp of what went on there uh, when i leave that night someone tries to follow us from the underground car park what? and they come out what? Uh, so the driver had to shake them off it was all it was all because they they thought had done the dirty on the chief inspector he was a mason mm. yeah and got him shifted overnight don't mess with the masons well, No. so this is what they did to me so that day it was like the last bit of the jigsaw mm. i realized then what had gone on see this is what it's about what these people in authority think they can do to people yeah when just to protect somebody because he's in a bloody uh, masonic lodge
1: to hear it from you gary is so powerful because david i can say it but
0: mm. you've lived it I lived it yeah mm. You know, there's many times where I could quite easily go and kill myself. And, and you know, I, what have I done wrong? I haven't done anything wrong. I did the job they wanted me to do. I got the results. And, yet yeah, that doesn't mean anything.
1: Today, we have Gary Rogers. And many of you have watched our x cop playlist People are absolutely fascinated by the stories of the police. And, you know, I've learned so much as well from the stories of the police because you hear a lot, the news portrays a lot, but it's like they say about, you know, soldiers who are sent overseas, they're the ones who know the most about what they're doing, why they're there, and if there's any government corruption or manipulation. Same with the cops. If you're putting your life on the line for a profession, you are going to get up to speed on what is going on in the world. And there's so many good people working for the police, but on this channel, the cops that we've interviewed, the ex-cops, many of them are campaigning for an end to the war on drugs. They believe that's a bad use of the police resources and taking all those resources to go after the predators and that women and kids should be prioritized over revenue generation and the mass incarceration of low-level drug users. It seems to be upside down right now because the women we've interviewed have been victims of st- heinous stuff. The guys who committed these crimes have got very light sentences. So also today, there's going to be a Masonic element to the interview. We had another cop on and he, he talked about that a little bit, but I think we're going to get into way more depth today with Gary, who was working with the Greater Manchester Police. His total police career is 30 years almost, three decades. And six years was spent full-time undercover. Not just undercover in the UK, but also abroad. He was awarded the Queen's Police Medal for this work in the New Year's Honours. And um, senior officers... um, Ended up doing some underhand stuff and he learned, you know, that higher up the ranks, things are not quite what they seem. And many of these senior officers are members of the Masonic Lodge. I'm getting asked about the Freemasons all the time. So his book, and what is the book called, Gary?
0: Undercover Policing and the Corrupt Secret Society Within. Undercover policing a mouthful, and the corrupt. <laughs> I love that subtitle. The viewers are going to be all over that. The
1: corrupt secret society within. Yeah. Wow. So the link for the book will be in the description box below the video, as will all of Gary's links and as of all of Jen's links, our new co host. If you have not familiar with Jen yet, she runs an organic cotton clothing company. And love this blue we've got on today. So
2: today, yes, uh, this lovely blue dress was gifted by Nomads Clothing. So that's www.nomadsclothing.co.uk. Head over to their website and you can buy one yourself.
1: Find the link in the description box below the video. So we've got covert policing, (laughs) the 1990 World Cup in Italy, (laughs) armed robbery, murder in the UK, on and on and on it goes. Hopefully we can fit it in within two hours. So, huge thank you for coming on then, Gary. Yes, thank you. Yeah.
0: Well, I, w- I want to thank you, actually, for giving me the opportunity to, to speak about this because uh, it's a subject, as you've just mentioned, Masonic influence, certainly within the police, that a lot of people don't want to touch for one reason or another. I mean, I've got my own views on that. Uh, another thing I just want to make clear from the start is, yes, I've had a book published. There'll be some people out there perhaps saying, here's somebody else now jumping on the bandwagon, you know, ex-police officer, uh, had a book published. The main thrust... For me, having this book published is is purely to get the story out about what GMP command did to me and how it affected not only my life but my family's life. You know, and, and for no reason than to protect a corrupt senior officer. So that's the main thrust of it. Yeah,
1: and people you know, think you're a millionaire if you've got a book out. Oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's JK yeah. Rowling, yeah. Stephen King, yeah, yeah. Jeffrey Archer. Being an author is actually one of the lowest paid professions according to the Society of Authors. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, you're doing a lot of activism by the sounds of things, exposing what's going on. Well,
0: yeah, and, and I wouldn't be sat here today uh, with a book if what had happened to me hadn't have happened. I wouldn't be here talking about the undercover side. I have to talk about my early life and the undercover side because the, the story wouldn't be the same without it. I can't start where my troubles started. You see what I'm saying? And the actual publishers, I was, I was contracted to so many words, and I went over, and their own editor, who was given the the job of trying to reduce it, said, I can't reduce it, it has to wow, stay in. Wow, So that said a lot to me.
1: Yeah. So we're going to get to the Masonic thing later on, but we did have a cop on who spoke a bit about the Masonic stuff. Did you
0: get to see that? Oh, certainly, yeah. What did you think of that? It's always been in the police. I mean, I joined in 1975, mm. and... Uh, throughout my career, it didn't affect me till I had the troubles, but it was always a well-known fact that certain senior officers would be in the lodge. You know, now, it, it didn't bother me because I didn't get into any departments I got into or, or any jobs through being a Mason because I'm not a Mason, but I don't hold it against them. And the other thing I want to make clear is I have nothing against ma- m- the Masons per se. I just don't think that police officers should be Masons because there's a conflict of interest there. Now, one thing I'll say at the moment, the guy I'm going to talk about later is Detective Chief Superintendent Dave James, who was the head of GMP CID. Now he he ran a nest of Masons wherever he was. And he was a Mason. The admin sergeant in the CID at that time was higher in rank in the Masons than Dave James. Wow. So when they're at work together, how does that? And he, this sergeant, got in trouble for um, uh, allegations uh, with females at headquarters. And he was always protected. Wow. Where he would have got anybody else kicked out. so He we was protected have... by Dave James. So, you know, so this st- is how I've seen it work myself while I've been in there.
1: So stay tuned for the Ms. Mason story. But We're going to go back first to how Gary got into the cops. And as a young person, did you aspire to become a police person?
0: Uh, well, uh, basically, I'm from Salford. Uh, lower cursel, uh from a two up two down terraced house Mum and dad didn't have much money um, um, I went to local primary school there, uh, they are always trying to strive to do better uh, but my dad's big um, problem was, he was a gambler so any money he got always went on the horses and my mum paid the price for that because she would used to work as a manageress for a, a, new, a dry cleaners he would have the takings of her and, she, and he'd go gambling it away, then he wouldn't be able to pay it back. So she'd have to say to the boss who was coming down, where, the, you know, she hasn't put the money in the bank straight away. So he'd then be going to friends, relatives, to get money back to pay her back so it could go in the account. for the, So she was always under pressure like that, basically. Mm-hmm. And that put me off gambling because of what I saw. And I also saw the aggravation she got off him, you know. Um, but we never had any money because of him and how he was. So um, yeah, I went to a local primary school um, and and as a kid, I could have gone one of two ways later on in life because um, I could drive when I was 15. I learned to drive and I used to work at my uncle's shop on a Saturday Sunday and he was a great guy, but just didn't see the, the problems he was causing, perhaps himself and me, but he'd give me the keys to the van. And on a Saturday Sunday at 15, I'd go doing deliveries now, I had no driving licence, no insurance. And if I was to have had an accident, I wouldn't yeah. be sat here talking to you today as having been a police officer. Also went shoplifting. So, you know, I've come from that sort of background in, in Salford. It could have gone from one, one of two ways. What were you shoplifting? What did I do? What did you Just, I, used to, I used to wag school. That's the other yeah. thing I got in, in trouble for. Um, but, I, but I looked more than anything else. I passed the 11 plus, so I went to Salford Grammar. Um, what did you shoplift? Uh, all sorts. <laughs> But, and this is this For is me. It was like candy bars and Marvel. Well, comics. yeah, but what I did was with with my coat, I sewed false pockets on the inside. <laughs> oh, how clever! Yeah, so, so and it'd be holes in my pockets, so I could have my hands in there and drop the stuff on the on the inside. We were in a big store in Manchester one day, walking out, and one of the uh, counter staff saw us and she shouted, and it was like uh, the piano player in the. Uh, cowboy films you know when uh, they walk in the bar the piano player stops everybody in the store stops and looked round and she made (laughs) us walk back and put it back now that day she could have detained us got the police could have had a a conviction you know again my career could have uh, gone through the window but that's the sort of people I was knocking about with even because I could drive at 15 the temptation was to go and have a car away Mm. I have been out with keys trying to get a car with mates in the past um, because I could drive so that sort of thing was going on. And uh, I didn't do well at school. Went to Salford Grammar. Uh, was always, uh, as we used to call it, in wagon school. Yeah. Uh, come out of classes, hide me me blazer in a substation nearby, and we'd go off. And that's when we go into town, start shoplifting and stuff like that. And then, you know, uh, um, when I got shouted out that day, uh, I knew I'm going to have to get me act together a little bit. Uh, our housemaster, he said I was knocking him out with the wrong people. So he wrote a letter to my dad and he got me in. He said, I wrote this letter to your dad. I'm going to send it to him. So I promised him I was going to change my ways and I didn't. So he wrote another letter and sent the pair of them. And that morning, I can still remember now when they arrived and how my dad was because they ended up on the other side of the room. Such was his anger. Right. And uh, he went back in, uh, put the wheel back on for me because they were going to expel me. And um, I got my head down for the last six months. Left school uh, without any O-levels because I didn't take them. Because I hated school. So I just wanted to get out. And I could join the cadets at 16. Um, my brother was in the police two years ahead of me. So he'd come home with stories. And I think that's what perhaps got my interest in it. Yeah. So I focused for the last six months. Wow. Uh, I was 16 in the October of 74, which officially I could leave at that age. I couldn't because I had to wait till the Easter break. So I was nearly 16 and a half then. And uh, I left, walked through the gates, never looked back. And I've never bothered with anybody I was at school with since. Because having come from Salford, to say you're going in the police wasn't the right thing to do.
1: Yeah, so like for the American viewers, let's explain a bit more about Salford then. So when I was a young person, I had a girlfriend out of Salford. And if you go Salford <laughs> now, they've got the Lowry, they've got the water, it's all the redevelopment. But back then... I would go to the council flats to see her, and the Salford skinheads would chase me back to my car.
0: Which part of Salford was she from? I can't remember. It was just in these big high-rises. Yeah. Mm, Could be near where I was, because there was lower cursel flats Mm. where I was. So Yeah. A lot of high-rise flats anyway in Salford. Were you part like? How old are you, Gary? I'm uh, 63 now. Oh, shut up. Okay, so when the I r- <laughs> not say that you need to go with Specsavers. You do look young. Yeah, you definitely look young. Yeah.
2: Yeah, Sean got called 40, 42 yesterday. Oh, didn't I love that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so when the rave scene began, then you were way older for that. Oh were, yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah, weren't yeah. Part, yeah, of of part of that. Mad, mad- no, Manchester, mad no, Chester.
0: No. And only in one of the jobs, I had a, 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 a I suppose wine bar from round the yeah. corner from the hacienda. Yeah, which we use oh, on, Hacienda. on from the yeah. uh, as an undercover uh, operation I was on. We use that just around the corner from the right. Hacienda. i will okay. come on to that after. Okay. Well. So joining the police then, what was the procedure there? So um, I tried uh, early doors in 74 to go, went with my dad, saw Mr. Thomas, who was the recruiting officer at South Mill Street in Manchester. And he said, I can't take you on until you've he, left school. Mm. So come back uh, in a couple of months. So, uh, obviously, I went back, uh, took the exam, which I passed, then I had to have a medical, then an interview, then I was in. So I left school on the 27th of March, 75, started on the 1st of April, which was quite daunting because having been as I had been at school and not not towing the line, to go from that with no qualifications into the police, which was quite a regimented service, uh, you know, If I didn't do what they said, I could be out. Then I'd have no qualifications to get a job. So it was a bit daunting in that respect. And I went there that morning. We sat in a room like this, all those new recruits that day. And uh, it was like being in a doctor's waiting room. Everyone just sat looking at one another. Um, And then I was in there for the next two years, which, you know, I enjoyed it. It was great. Some of the departments I got to was fantastic. Uh, Did certain things perhaps which, uh, you know, you might question now. Uh, I worked at scenes of crime. And, Before uh, we get to that, what's the training like? Oh, sorry. Mm. Uh, training, right. Uh, you would uh, obviously get kitted out of uniform. You had to have the right haircut. Uh, there'd be a lot of marching, always being inspected. You had to have your boots pulled up. Uh, training every week uh, at the YMCA in Manchester. And uh, the YMCA in Manchester then had an indoor running track in the roof. So we had to go once a week. And they'd run you ragged up there. So much so, many days where I'd be sick. Because they'd run that much, and then we'd be doing physical activities, so it was all focused on keeping fit, uh, being smart, and learning the law. And then you'd go out to different departments, you know, like uh, uh, traffic uh, on the streets. So you'd work with shifts and, and go out and get get a general understanding of what it was going to be like to be a police officer. But I loved it that much. I used to walk from my house in Salford into Manchester in my cadet uniform, <laughs> which had anyone if, if something had happened nearby would have had a clue what to do <laughs> did you get any stick from that from yeah like- yeah yeah um but but not like you might get today uh, you know i think uh, certainly pcsos today police uh, community support officers must get a lot of grief yeah because even police officers today get grief and, and and one half the time have to take it whereas i think there was a bit more respect for police in the 70s before
1: the war there. on drugs yeah. yeah yeah did well soon before you went to an autopsy
0: uh, well, I went. I was going to say before I was with um, Scenes of Crime, so we used to go out taking the fingerprints with the guy every day. And there was a murder uh, in '75. Wanda Scala, uh, Trevor Hardy, who was a serial killer, and uh, his his uh, calling card, if you like, was to bite the nipples off oh, the victims. Oh, so. And uh, I went to the mortuary where Wanda Scala was on that day. So. And I put in the book, you know, at 16, to see that, uh, no one said to me, are you all right to come in?
2: That must have been traumatic. Oh,
0: well, <laughs> like many other things after that that happened. That was but your first at that 16. time, even the guy I was with didn't say, do you want to step out of this or, you know, do you want to come in? It was just, it was just taken as read that you would go in because you're going to be a police officer. Yeah. So it's, it's like the mentality is, you're going to see this anyway, so come in. Do you think they did it for the shock factor? No, it's just that they didn't—they didn't think anything else of it. He was doing, you know, they're doing that all the time. I, I'm a bit of a pain in the backside because they've been taught to take me out with them as a cadet, and he's just getting on with his job. So he's not on the welfare side, thinking, "Are you okay, uh, Gary?" To, to see this. What was the serial killer's name again? Trevor Hardy. Trevor Hardy. Did yeah, he have like he, a- he killed uh, another girl called Sharon Mossoff, who I knew because she went to uh, a youth club I used to go to in Salford oh God. and she was murdered by him. And, uh, how was he
1: abducting the women?
0: He just, uh, Wanda Scarlet was a, a barmaid, uh, a local pub, and she was on her way home from the shift at the pub. And he attacked her on a building site and he uh, hit her with a slab. Uh, I mean, I won't go into detail on her, how she was, but th- that was his calling card. And obviously when he, when he bit, he'd leave his teeth marks. Was so, so that how they apprehended him then? Yeah, the, yeah. The, the yeah. I mean, he, he killed a few before he was arrested. Did he? Yeah. How yeah. long was he going? It was though? just, well, I, I don't know the exact time, but I know he killed a good few, Wanda Scarlet, Shalom Mosoff. But to go to the mortuary and see that at that age and, and see how she was, was horrendous.
1: Did they give him a nickname, the media?
0: Um, they may well have done, I can't recall it. I mean, I've not followed his uh, his life since then, mm. you know.
1: Um, So what would they have done then? Brought in an expert to examine the bite marks?
0: Yeah, and and I know with, uh, I think it was Sharon Mossoff, he'd he'd, he'd left her somewhere and nobody had found her after a few days. He even went back and pulled her out from wherever he'd left her so that she would be found. But, you know, to think you've killed, murdered somebody Mm. and left them and you go back to the scene later and pull that person out. Can get away with it again. Didn't, Su- didn't Sutcliffe adjust some of his corpses? Uh, Sutcliffe, uh, I don't think... Oh, he went back because one of them had a £5 note yeah. from a, a wages uh, from his wages, yeah. which he got spoke to about. They went to the company after. I think that was one of his big concerns, that that £5 note was on. Yeah. Uh, one of the women that he uh, killed. So in, in terms of this
1: killer then, expert looks at the, the teeth marks... Does that get run through like dental records? Well, it, then? to
0: think you then have them bite marks. Mm. You could then marry those up if you have if you actually get a suspect later, that would come into play oh. then, wouldn't it? I think
2: this is back in the seventies. The seventies, yeah.
0: So, we, so
1: we, he was brought in as a suspect, was he? And then it matched.
0: Well, teeth matched. It, it, they they would have took those details when they found the bodies because mm. every time he did it, he'd be leaving those marks. It's not like they didn't have DNA or anything then. Um, But when they actually got a suspect and arrested him, mm. they would obviously be able to uh, marry that up, mm. you know. And it's it's so conclusive, isn't it? Yeah. You can't say that's not my teeth marks when, yeah. unless they had all his teeth out.
1: So that woman, then you saw the corpse. Was was there an autopsy performed? Yeah, yeah. How what's going through your head watching an autopsy? Well,
0: her face was was black because she'd been hit with a paving slab, right? Um <laughs> and and I, I don't know to this day, you know, how I, how I continue to s- sit and watch that, and stay and watch it, because uh, and the smell in there was horrendous, this this detergent stuff that there as well. Um, uh, but it must, as you think as, as a sixteen year old to see that, and, and i have only not long since left school, you know. Um, so
1: did that break you in, or were you equally shocked for a few? I, I, can, I few can't more even occasions. tell you
0: today what effect that had on me. I don't know if it was a, a good effect or a bad effect, but it, you know it can't really be a good effect. I don't think. You know, any traumatic incident that you, you witness or you know or see has an effect on you. Uh, you might take some good out of it in one way. Um, you know, being in the police, it's stiff up a lip into it. you get on with stuff, and uh, that's what you're paid for. Um, How long were you with that unit? Uh, I was in there for six weeks. So you, you would go as a cadet to, to uh, you, you would go to departments for six weeks at a time. What and, was the uh, next you know,
1: serious crime they they've put you in in that unit?
0: Uh, well, the, the, it, that that was the main one I went to. The rest was was your normal stuff. You know, there's always somebody getting broke into. So they would, and it was just by chance when I was with him that day, that's where we went. Now, you know, he hadn't planned that. And it was just by chance I was with him. But um, the rest of the stuff would have been mediocre stuff, if I can say that. You know, it's not mediocre to the person who's been broken into, but you go in doing the same sort of stuff. They're brushing, looking for fingerprints where someone's got in. What was what was the next unit you went to? Um, well, uh, i had gone to uh, working, as I say, on traffic. Uh, so it was traffic after that one. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you got to arrive where there's fatalities and crashes? Yeah,
0: well, we, we I was with on afternoons one night uh, with a, one of the lads there, and we turned onto the East Lanks Road in Swinton, and it looked like um, someone had thrown a coat on the floor. It was an old lady who'd been hit, oh. and and no one had stopped, and she was just in the middle of the East Lanks Road. And we, we the headlights picked it up, stopped, and obviously she was dead. Um, <laughs> it's like. These things go on, don't they? And and then, you, know, you know, you know. It's like murders these days. They don't make the front pages because they come that commonplace. But uh, that—that's what I think. I also got a buzz out of it because that's one thing about being in the police. Anything no can two, happen. No two days are the same. Yeah. Mm. It's not like you know, going working in a bank and you go in doing all the figures every day and it's all mundane. And it's like Groundhog Day, isn't it? Police, you don't know what's around the corner. Mm. Do you say there's a, that's what the police and criminals have got
1: in common then? That adrenaline thing where anything could happen. Well,
0: I certainly think so, yeah. Um, you know, it's that, uh, and me and Shay, who, who's coming with me today, we were talking about this on the way in. We, he was saying to me, he doesn't get the same high now from anything from, from when he was doing the undercover work. So become he can't get it. the same high. So it's it's addictive. And I mean, being an undercover officer is addictive. Because what, you get a bus from it.
1: What was the biggest challenges working for the um, motor side of it, the vehicle
0: side of it? On, on traffic?
1: Traffic side of it, yeah. What
0: I loved about that was was uh, that buzz you also got when you were going to jobs, because they'd have the, the sirens going, <laughs> uh, the horns. And, you know, to be going through traffic uh, at speed. Were you the driver? No, no, no. I was, this is as a cadet now. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I went on to pass my advance later on. So uh, I got to do that in my career. But as a cadet 16, sat there with them and whizzing through to jobs uh, was fantastic. You know, that's another thing you get a bus from. Mm. And when I eventually got on traffic years later, that was one of the things I loved, getting a job where I had to put them on, especially on the bikes. What did you do after traffic? Uh, You then went on streets. Uh, So I would then, uh, the last six weeks of me being a cadet was at the Crescent in Salford, which was renowned at the time. Uh, Anybody in Salford wouldn't want to get arrested and go to Salford uh, because... You know, and it's no secret, some of them would get spoken to and uh, you wouldn't mess about. You know, like today, you look at the uh, police programmes on the telly, the way staff are treated. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that's right, it's good that the video in it because there's no accusations then. But, uh, you know, Salford was renowned for no trouble. And when I uh, went to work at Salford, you couldn't move through Salford after 8 o'clock at night without seeing police everywhere. If you were coming out of Manchester... And some it wasn't right. You were guaranteed to get a stop. Whereas I go now, and I say it regularly to people. I've travelled here today. I haven't seen any police. Is it because they're
2: understaffed now? Though? Well, they've got
0: to be. I mean, yeah. I mean, Great Manchester Police when I started was seven and a half thousand. I mean, I think they're down to five now. Wow. So that tells you a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> and then there's the government saying we're recruiting another twenty. You know, that's throughout, <laughs> that's throughout the country. So, so we're, we're, they're not. They're not. You're not getting extra staff. No. And and then they talking out you know all these different departments. It's no wonder people get away with what they get away with because they haven't got the staff to look into it.
1: What's the biggest challenges in working in Salford then, In the as a cadet? Uh,
0: well, um, obviously Salford, certain parts of Salford where uh, you know, people wouldn't want to go. And uh, but again, when I was there in the late seventies, uh, well mid seventies it was. Um, it was great because the police in Salford we respected to an extent. You had the docks down Trafford Road. Always trouble there at the docks with the seamen coming in. Um But the police had it sorted and they'd be there and they had the staff to deal with it. That's what I liked about it. And, uh you know, you go to the Crescent and and these people were arrested, dealt with and took, put before the courts, as it should be. Um, so so say, go, you said there was always trouble at the docks What kind of trouble is that? Well when, when they've come in and they're having drinks And there's um, a lot of prostitution down there Because uh, obviously the, the, the ladies would come Because the, the, you've got the boats in and that at the docks um, So the two go together in, in some respect down there Then they'd be drinking, buying them drinks all Brawling there. And then they'd be yeah Colding. fighting out, you know, outside and whatever uh, a, lot, a lot of thieving from the docks as well uh, all this went on.
1: Showing up at fights then, if the fights are still active as a young person,
0: how did um, that feel? Well, you, you felt... Uh, one thing I hated was, because I always wanted to be a police officer, and as a cadet, you had cadet on your, on your, on your uh, oh, shoulders, yeah. as opposed to a police officer would have numbers. It's like a target sign. Yeah, yeah. cadet and a, a blue band around your hat. Yeah. So I, I... Took my cadets off. <laughs> yeah, because I didn't want to be seen as a cadet. And it sounds daft, that. And I went in the CID office at Salford one night with uh, in this uh, in me, in me uh, great coat, with a big black coat, and a, a detective sergeant there who was renowned. And he was asking me who I was because I didn't have a on. And he said, why haven't you got something on your shoulders? You look like an ARP warden, he said. And uh, But that was me. I didn't want anyone to know I was a cadet. I wanted him to think I was a, a police officer. Mm. But, you know, you go with some things with these uh, officers and you'd feel out of it because... But on the other hand, you know, we, we got a call one night uh, down Trafford Road. Uh, someone was uh, uh, breaking into a phone box, getting the money out. And I went in a, in a Mini, which were the Panda cars then. And the officer I was, I'd been put with, big fattish guy, it took him half an hour to get out of the Mini. <laughs> but as we turned um, uh, into the street off uh, Trafford Road, we could see the phone box ahead. And obviously those Pandas had police in lights on the top. And they must have seen us coming. And, and they were out and I could see who was in it as we were driving up. And they all legged it. I was fit because of all the fitness in the cadets. So I got out and I was off after this person had seen inside. Caught up with them in the estate, grabbed them, bit of a, a, a grapple, brought them back. And it was a girl, turns out, but was renowned in the area for, for trouble. Right. Now, I, by the time I got her back to where the police car was, he's just getting out. <laughs> now, the, the point I'm making, you know, again, that's another thing for me. Police officers should be fit. And it seemed to me it was going like once they've got the probation in, which is the first two years, a lot of police officers went downhill. You know, they're eating pies at work, fishing and chips, and they won't be able to run after anybody. Mm. Uh, but I proved the point that night that when I chased that girl, and she had been breaking into the uh, phone box, and I had to put a statement in and uh, she got charged. But she was arrested because of my fitness and being able to get hold of her. You know, so that was another good reason for having me with him.
2: So, do you think they need to bring more fitness programs? Should be, to you should force? be
0: fit, shouldn't you? Yeah. You know, and what I don't like today is when I see police officers stood around with their hands in their pockets. <laughs> to me, you know, you, you get respect by the way you look as well. And police officers in the past, certainly when I joined, with the top hat, the big hat, uh, and you had to be smart. And, and that, that says a lot to people, I think. You know, first impressions count. If you turn up looking like a bag of crap, uh, you know you're not doing yourself any favours were any brawls that were hard to settle down well more so later in, in when I worked at the city centre on the A division because that was a bit of a unique division to work on then because uh, people would come in every morning to go to work so it would be very busy in the day, they'd go home at tea time and then come back at night for the nightlife uh, not the rave clubs you'd like uh, talking about, <laughs> talking about Fagans on Oxford Street and, yeah. uh, you know, all those sort of clubs. But then it would kick off. But the beauty of being on the A division was it was, it was a small division, but very busy. But because you had a lot of staff then, if you got in any trouble, there'd be someone with you in no time, you know, to help out. So yeah. a lot of fighting on the A division because, the, you know, the two go together, don't they? They're out for a the night, they drink, and then it starts fighting.
1: What was the department then after that department that you just said you were in? Uh,
0: once once I'd finished on the streets. Yeah. Uh, that was the very suffered. last department you ever went to. So I then completed them six weeks. Then uh, I then went to Bruges in Warrington, which is where you go as a, uh, as a new police officer. Because I would then um, finish my me, me cadets. because I was then 18 and a half. So I then become a police officer. And then you go for 12 weeks to, to bruce in Warrington. So Warrington's next to witness, my town. Where's, yeah. where's Bruche? Oh, it's, it's a housing estate now. They closed it down. Uh, it's on the A57. Um, I think the actual area's called Bruche. It's Is it? called, uh, what's it, Drive? Um, I can't even tell you. There's a big pub as you come off the motorway uh, and get onto the A57. There's a big pub on the right. And just as you go past it, Bruche's was on the right-hand side. Did that have some unique challenges? In, in as much, not for me uh, as such, because I've only been in the police for two years by then. So I was accustomed to, um, uh, you know, what, what it was about in some ways, but certainly um, the discipline. You, I had people in my class there who have come from Civvy Street. And uh, the only other, one of the other people in there was a, an ex squaddy. Um, but everybody else was from Civvy Street. So to be then thrust together in that environment, where it was very regimental again. You'd be up in the morning, marching, uh, running. Um, every time you walked around the centre, you saw a boss. You had to salute. So, but it was all done for the right reasons, to you know, to instill um, into you about that respect and things. Um, but then that was intense because you were learning the law then to become a police officer. And every week you would have a exam. If you didn't pass it, you got backclust. And if you didn't pass that one, you're out. So you know, it, the clock's ticking. Then do they still
2: have that to this day?
0: Well, they don't have the police training centres now like that. I think every force no. does its own. Oh, uh, you can go to college or something, get a get a, get a qualification, and drive the, uh, join the police then, because you've you've got the the knowledge of the law to become a police officer. So, but the, it was a bad mis, big mistake closing them down because mm. going to Bruce, you would have officers from all over the country coming there. Um, you know, and, and you'd bond together after uh, with 12 weeks training. Um, and, you know, like everywhere, uh, there was a guy who used to do the uh, physical uh, training there um, who uh, was an ex-Marine. And his party piece, he could get in the swimming pool. with. He used to smoke, drink a lot. His cigarette would get down to the butt nearly, He'd put it in his mouth, and his tongue would come out and take it in. Oh. And he would swim underwater to the That's other sad. end, swim a length out the other end, open his mouth, and all the smoke would come out. But it's not something to be proud of and you shouldn't be smoking, you know, to be fit. But he could do that. Wow. And uh, it was unbelievable. You know, Quite to... a party trick. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I know it's true because I see he didn't do it. Yeah. You know, but um, yeah, it, it was a, a, a great experience. I enjoyed it. And I got, I got, because of my two years as cadet, I got made class leader, which at my age, 18 and a half, and there was people in the class who were a lot older. To get made class leader was was great for me, yeah, which was was indicated by a, a white lanyard on your shoulder. So I was responsible for the class. You see, <laughs> that, that was given to me that responsibility.
2: Did you find them being older that they gave you a bit of stick?
0: Well, I think I, I had I've just joined and and uh, got that and not having been in the police for two years already, it'd be a bit, bit more daunting. But mm. you know, I, perhaps my attitude at the time was, I know more about it than you do because. Been in two years, you know. So I've, you I've just arrested that. somebody when I before I come here on that uh, at that phone box, so I've got a bit more knowledge. I'm the, but the, the 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 guy who was from the um, uh, from the army, he didn't like it because I think he thought he should have got it, you know. But uh, and the other thing about being there at that time, there was a uh, where you were housed was called the Snake Pit, so there was four recruits to a room. Yeah, I mean, I I became a trainer at Bruce years later. And uh, then they had their own rooms, ensuite recruits. So to think it was four of you in a room and you they, they had one bathroom at the end of the corridor. But, you know, we got to know one another well, obviously. Mm. As well as that
1: <laughs> Was Warrington easier to police than Manchester?
0: Well, I, I wasn't actually policing Warrington. I was just there to train. Ah. You know, so you're in... It's like being in a camp. So you're there for 12 weeks, learning the law um, and hopefully getting to the end of it. In so fact, you then become a police officer.
1: And Where did they send you then?
0: I went to the A Division at Bootle Street. The A Division? What yeah. does that mean? Great Manchester Police have uh, several divisions. So the actual area of Great Manchester Police is, is split into divisions. So the A Division is the city centre. B Division was Colliehurst, C Division, Greymere Lane. F Division was Salford. So they were all responsible then for their own areas. So you, as a, as a new recruit, would get uh posted to one of those divisions wherever there was a you know um a, a vacancy so when we when i went there was uh two others as well off my um uh, when i when i went to bruce three of us went to the a division together and um that's where you would then do your probation which is the two-year period but uh, i went there april um started april 77 and uh and obviously the two years probation. So in 79, April 79, I'd got through it, got confirmed then as a police officer. So they can only get rid of you then if you do mm. something corrupt, criminal act. But they could get rid of you for anything if you didn't come up to scratch within that two-year period.
1: Right. So what crimes were you investigating there? Uh,
0: well, on the A Division, it was, as I say, um, uh, shoplifters. Uh, uh, all manner of things, really, because obviously... Not as many people living there at the time as there is now, but you still got burglaries, burglaries in in, in the stores, all the shops, uh, a lot of fighting, alcohol uh, problems. Uh, So you're getting a whole array of things, really. But when you first go, you're out for eight weeks with a tutor who takes you under their wing. Whether they want you with them is another thing. Uh, But uh, the idea is I got put with somebody who was in a panda car, so they get sent to all the jobs. So you would go around with them. And uh, it's a big learning uh, experience, learning curve. Um, and obviously you've got to get on with that person, haven't you? For, thankfully I did. You know, <laughs> the, 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 the shift I went on, everyone was great from the moment I started. I started actually on nights. That was the first one I walked. I had to walk in that parade room as a new new police officer. and We sat there for the parade, which is, you have to stand there with your handcuffs and, and your truncheon. And on nights you have to have your, your uh, torch as well. And your notebook, produce them. Disciplinary the offence not to have them. Mm-hmm. And then once you've gone through that, they've checked you. You sit down, and then they go through uh, what's happening on been happening on the division, who you might have to be looking for, um, you know where crime is being committed. Uh, so you get the rundown. Then you get a patrol to work on. So the main ones I got was Oldham Street and Oxford Street. So. You, you think about that. I mean, to walk up and down Oldham Street, Oxford What's Street. What's
2: that like? I've never been. Well,
0: it, it, Oxford Street was busy, Yeah. as as was Oldham Street. But, you know, on an outer division, you would be given a bigger area to cover. But just be walking up and down a street all day. And the boss who was in charge at that time, it was a disciplinary offence to so go in any premises and have a cup of tea, if they caught you. Because, you know, his view on it was, you should be seen outside. Now, my idea about policing is, you police with... Public's consent. So a lot of play, I ignored that and obviously went in places. And uh, by talking to people on the division, you, you get to know things mm. and they're pointing things out to you about certain things they've seen, which is what policing's about, you know. I mean, on Oxford Street, uh, I used to go in the BBC and uh, I was there when they were filming Cheggers Plays Pop. <laughs> if you remember Keith Cheggwin, you don't know him. Vaguely, I read in <laughs> my head, vaguely. Yeah. Was Everything I've little... mentioned this morning, nobody knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> Keith, Keith Chegwin had Chegwin plays pop and uh, uh, they had Susie Quattro, Devil Gate Drive. Remember Susie Quattro? Yeah, well, they were filming yeah. that for his show and I stood watching it. And, uh, you know, little things like that. I, I got into with the Opera House as well. Um, Ken Dodd was there, stood in the wings watching his show. <laughs> Obviously, I should have been out, but I'm still talking to the uh, guy on the uh, stage door And he'd be telling me things that had gone on. So that's what it was about for me. But um, yeah, it was all manner of stuff on the A division. You know, you you didn't know what was going to happen. I I had one incident, uh, which I mentioned in the book. Uh, I was on nights, got called to Albert Square about two in the morning. Car had been stolen. So I go, and there's this lad who's had his racing green Mini stolen. It was 4869, numbers like that, TJ. And I've always liked Tom Jones, I'm going to admit that to you today, but I thought that number at the time would have been great on his Rolls Royce or <laughs> something, yeah. personal number. So I took the details of it, circulated it, and it went on, uh, you know, in case any other officers come across it, and that was at two in the morning. So I continued with the shift, finished at seven in the morning, I'm on my way home, and uh, I met a set of traffic lights uh, in Salford, waiting to turn right. As I'm dozing off, because I just want to get to bed. Mm. And I'm looking at the car in front of me, a racing green Mini. And it was this 4869 TJ. Mm. So I thought, he must have got his car back, this lad. So as the lights change, we turn right, and I go on the wrong side of the road. And I'm looking in to see. And it's not the guy who reported it. It's some of a scrot actually. (laughs) So so I bid me on, he looked at me, and I pointed to him to pull over. Now, I've gone into police mode now. And I haven't been in long, because uh, this is about 1978. Uh And I've got my blue shirt on, which is what we had then. I was in half police uniform. So he pulls up, and I pull up behind him in my own car. It's now about ten past seven in the morning on a Sunday. And uh, I got out, and I walk to the driver's door. Now, bear in mind, he can see me in the wing mirror. And he doesn't have to be the brain of Britain to know what I am now. And I got to the driver's door. The revs went up, and he took off. Mm. So... You know straight away then, don't you? So I get back to my car, no mobile phones then. And it's uh, ten past seven. The only people about are are villains like him. police officer's going home from finishing work. So I'm after him. And we go down Lancaster Road, right uh, up to Irms of the Height. And he gets on the dual carriageway, Broad Street, going into Manchester. And I can see through the back window of the Mini, I can see the butt of a rifle. And he's messing as he's driving along. So he comes off uh, off the slip road to Salford Precinct, where it is now. Big Pendleton roundabout, it's massive. He comes, he comes off there and I come off the slip road. By the time I got onto the roundabout, he stopped on the left. The doors open, and he was stood with a rifle pointed at me. <laughs> so unheard of at the time. You know, it went for guns, your head.
2: You know, it, it wasn't a
0: regular th- occurrence, yeah. guns like that. and And I don't know to this day... If that was an imitation, if it was a, um, uh, what do you call it, air rifle, or if it was real. And I, I had split seconds to think about what I was going to do. And uh, I looked at him and I just carried on around the roundabout, drove around, trying to get my head together more than anything else. <laughs> and as I come round, he'd obviously jumped back in the car, drove off down Broughton Lane, and he went off right or left. So I searched for him, couldn't see him. No by the phone, I went to her phone box, rang the control room, they circulated it, but I don't know who he was, what he was doing or what he'd been doing since nicking that car at two in the morning. Now, I pose this question to people. Uh, when I went I, when I, a trainer at Bruce years later, i told him about that and I said, what would you have done?
3: Mm.
0: And all the macho ones go, "At a random. Yeah. So I'm in my own car, newly, new police officer. I'm full of what's right and what's wrong. Reasonable force that you can use in in uh, and and I'd argue now that if I did ram him, I would have been safe because, as far as I'm concerned, that was a real gun. You know, it might have turned out not to be afterwards. Uh, but they say, let's uh, ram him, and and I put that. What if it was a, an imitation? Would you still be okay to have done it? Uh, I don't know what you would have done.
1: So if you rammed him, you're putting yourself in the proximity of the gun, aren't you? You're putting yourself in. The not only that, but way. say say
0: I rammed him and, and killed him. Okay. And then, and was it a guarantee? If I'm gonna ram him in my car coming off that slip road, yeah, I just drove straight into him because he was stood uh, at the back of the car. The car's got the driver's door open, and he was stood at the back of the mini, pointed at me. He'd have opened up, wouldn't he? So, uh, well, if it was a real one, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, that's one. That's one possibility. Yeah. What if it was an imitation and he didn't And I just rammed him, and, and then I put him into the back seat of his car, and he's dead. And then they go, it's an imitation. You should have done. Hmm. I would have parked at a safe distance I, and called I, back up. I'd like
2: to think. phone. <laughs> I'd like to think, though, the courts. radio. Police radio. Yet?
0: No, I was in my own car. Oh, oh I'm on my way home from yeah. work. Oh, I didn't realize. I thought no, you would no, have had a police radio. No, no, I've, I've finished at seven. Yeah, and it's just by chance. I'm going home to get in bed. Yeah, and I come behind it I set a set of traffic lights. So I'm I'm in my own time now. Yeah, I'm not at work. I'm finished. I'm in half blues because I'm going home. And then I come across it, that's when I stop it. So, nothing, you know, no police radio, was no nothing. I think
1: you did the right thing then, because that's an yeah. armed response situation, isn't it? Well,
0: well, not only that, though, you know, ethically, what, what would the courts have thought of that? Would they have said, would, would 12 members of the public on a jury say, you did the right thing there? Yeah, if it was like, like a Rameen. teenager with an ergon, Because you've got
1: to put yourself in that position. If it was a teenager with an gun, it'd look bad, wouldn't it? But
0: this was a guy. He wasn't a teenager. Okay. Yeah, he, he, he was a guy. And again, yeah. the way he was going, when I come across him, he was waiting to turn right into Lancaster Road, which takes you straight down to the East Lanks Road. And I think he was going to go down there, left, to Liverpool. I'm not calling people from Liverpool. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that's the way he seems to be going. Yeah. yeah. Now, now again, I, I I still don't know who he is, what he was doing, and it still bugs me to this day. And that was 1978. Yeah. But you know, totally. And I had to go the following day to the criminal records office, look at photographs, see if I could pick him out, which I couldn't. Yeah. You know, last thing I remember, all I saw was a gun when he pointed it at me, and I, and I went round the roundabout. But, me, you know, uh, talking about filling your pampers. <laughs> it, it, it was it was a nightmare. What was your next big her uh, raising challenge after that one? Um, so obviously that was on the A division. Uh, we did that uh, in in terms of uh, the the major things. I think I always relate back to the undercover side. You see, because it's normal policing up to that point um, on the A division dealing with that. That was out of the ordinary, as I say, because you never had you never had good stuff coming up. People being shot, um, but I think. that's the main one for me when I got as an undercover officer, which obviously I'll come on to later. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, anything you go to, though, is bad because you don't know what's going to happen. No. And there's many occasions when you're on your own and uh, there isn't people to come and help you. So, you know, you've just got to get on with it and deal with it as best you can. That's that's the thing. Um, So I spent two years uh, on the A Division. um, But the other thing that happened there, which I'll highlight... um, I started there in 77, uh, 78. My dad collapsed on the 18th of December, mm. uh, 78 at home. I was on afternoons and he got took to hospital and uh, they kept him in. He was only 42. Uh, so I went to see him Christmas Eve. Uh, and we, this is how concerned we were. We'd been going every night to see him. mum had gone on the 23rd, the 24th, had he have not been in hospital, he would have been going to friends Christmas Eve. So I said to my mum, you stay at home, I'll go and see him tonight and uh, you get ready because we are going to go to a friend's house and I'll take you. So happy with that, I went to see him. He was sat up in bed in Salford Royal on Chapel Street in Salford and uh, he just said to me, don't stay for the full hour, just stay half an hour and uh, go home and take your mum to their house. So I said, all right, so we had a chat, he was sat up and uh, I walked down the uh, ward to leave and I looked back to wave and he wasn't looking at me, so he didn't wave which I didn't think of till after. So anyway, I take my mum to where she was going. Uh, next morning, seven o'clock in the morning, phone call. It took a turn for the worse. So can you come? So having been, been in the police, alarm bells were ringing anyway. Mm. We drive down uh, the Crescent and I can see through the second floor window, Salford Royal, where his bed was. And the curtains around. So we get there, stoppers on the ward. Can't, can't go down the ward, come into the matron's office, which again is a sign. When they, when they had matrons, yes. uh, and they get my mum in, he hasn't got a clue, and tell us he's died. Mm. Now, when I was there Christmas Eve, and I'm not calling the nursing staff, but they had limited staff on, and they were getting ready for a bit of a party on the ward, which I can't blame them for, because they're working Christmas Eve, but it's always been in the back of my mind, did he take ill? And there wasn't somebody there, because of that. Now, to be sat up at uh, 7 o'clock the night before, then to die. So I walked out of the Mason's office and they tried to stop me. I just pushed past them. Went down the ward, curtains round them. He was still in bed, dead. So I was 20 then. Mm. He was 42. And, and this is the police again for you. <clears throat> My brother worked on the A Division with me on a different shift. So dad died, 42. They got us both in, the chief inspector. And he said, uh, Only one of you can have compassionate leave. Whoever's dealing with the uh, funeral can have what it. The, hell? the other one's got to come in. So oh my God. he's two years older than me. So he took on the task of arranging the funeral and I went back to work. Brilliant. Now, wow. uh, you know, I beg that question in my book, would they get away with that today? No. Not at all. So I had to go in. And, and ironically, that week when I went back, I got a sudden death at uh, the NCP car park back at Kendall's. 42-year-old guy who'd had a heart attack. I had to deal with that. So that this is the week, the week, the yeah. week after my dad's just died. not even had the funeral because there was that many people died that Christmas. We didn't get the funeral till the January. So, you know, so <laughs> again, I'm 18 and a half, 19, and you've got that. You must, you but you're told of, to, you just get on with it. You must have just been in a bit of a daze though. Again, I said to you before, I don't know what effect that, has had on me. It must have affected me, I don't know it has. You know, and uh, I hate Christmas for that reason, which is hard for some people to still understand. To this day. Why, uh, yeah, And every Christmas day, I go to the to the cemetery because we have a book of remembrance, and uh, I go there. I've not missed it in the forty odd years. I've gone every Christmas day, uh, and for another reason as well now, which I'll go on to, because my best mate on that shift was I called Tony Quinn, and I use that name as an undercover officer further down the line, which is what I did. People I knew, I used to use their names because I'd remember them, uh, which was important obviously. And uh, so my dad dies Christmas, uh, 78, and uh, Tony's on my shift, great lad. We used to uh, knock about together. I went downhill when my dad died. So I was drinking, smoking. We'd finish uh, whatever shift, we'd be out drinking. Um, And he was a good mate to have with me at the time. So, uh, We're on uh, afternoons. When we did a a shift of afternoons, which was seven on the trot, you'd finish on a Tuesday night at 11 o'clock, and then you'd have Wednesday, Thursday off. But it was always the policy then. Uh, We'd go out somewhere at 11. So in Stretford, there used to be a a club called The Boat, and it was a boat on on the river, and it had two dance floors, it was a, an old term, discotech, which you won't have heard of.
2: Discotech. Discotech. Yeah, that's where we all went. it was open till two, you see, in the morning.
0: So Cuts. we could finish at 11, get your glad rags on, yeah. and then you'd be out. Out on the boat. And, and, and it, was a, it was a team building thing as well, because we'd all done the seven days afternoons. We'd put up with whatever we have had to put up with, and we'd go out and unwind, and then we'd be there. So I was on the van that night, which meant my shift, they'd finish at 11, but the van stayed on till midnight just to cover for the night shift coming on. So there was always somebody out in case something happened. So I drive in through the gates at Bootle Street at 11, and they're all there with the glad rags on, waiting to go. And Tony was with them. And he looked through the passenger door window, and he said, Are "You come in." And I said, as long as I don't get tied up with anything, I said, I'll be there after. So I carry on, and, uh, and I finish at midnight. So this is only six months after my dad died. And I say, I took a nose dive, and uh, I lost weight. And uh, I wasn't in a party mood to go there. So I went home. So I got in bed and at uh, four in the morning on the uh, front door, look out to the bedroom window. There's two colleagues off my shift stood there four in the morning. So I go and open the door. Lo and behold, tell me Tony's dead. They finished at the boat and they were going on to a policewoman's house after to carry on having a bit of a party. And... Uh, He'd, he'd gone back to Boodle Street, got his motorbike, come along Deansgate, and when you get to uh, Shude Hill, uh, to um, Knock Mill at the end of Dean's Gate, it used to bend to the right and used to the Mancunia, Mancunia Way fly over. And it, he didn't turn right, he went straight on at the lamppost. Broke his jaw, which went up into his brain. And oh, wow. Killed him. And I'd just spoke to him a few hours before. So in the space of six months, I had my me, me dad die and my best mate. And again... We were on Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, Thursday off, back on early on the Friday. No, nothing from the police about, uh, you know, getting anybody to have a chat with you about anything. So
2: he never had time to grieve for either? Not for, for that. that.
0: No. And, then, and at, the, at his funeral, they had uh, the, the, the drape, we had a full ceremonial uh, funeral. So at Agecroft Cemetery, there was police officers in uniform all the way down. I carried the coffin with the drape on from GMP. And, uh, you know how do you get over something like that at that age he was only 21 and in my book there's a picture one of the pictures because I go he's at Age Cross Cemetery so when I go Christmas Day for my dad and my mum now who's died uh, I go to his grave as well mm-hmm. and, and it's sad to say it's like unattended now really yeah yeah. so I always take some flowers clean it up yeah. you know and leave it right but it says on it PC Anthony Walter Quinn 21 and uh, I think how many years ago it is now but again you know Police, then we're useless. Do as we say, not as we do. Yeah, very dictatorial. They're like gods, so if they said uh, jump, you jump. What was the next big challenge in your career after that stuff? Um, so uh, I stayed there. I needed to get out of it, basically, and I've never been one of these people who could stay in one place for a long time. Some people join the police and they'll stay on one division for the 30 years, and that's great. I'm not calling them. But that wasn't for me, so I needed to move on. So, a uh, vacancy arose to be uh, for an advanced driving course. Uh, but but the the uh, thing about it was you had to agree if you passed to go on traffic. So I wouldn't wait to go on traffic really, but I wanted that qualification because that could open doors for me as well. So I went and did the course, and uh, I mean that nearly went pear shaped because uh, you th- used to have uh, get to the driving school in Longsight every morning. They'd have a parade. Little sergeant there who everybody hated. He, he was only small. He used to have a, his cap was, the peak was cut like over his nose, you know, like SS officer. And uh, they used to say about him, you know, he's never seen an angry man outside, but he loves being able to, to uh, have a go at recruits who have come for driving. So uh, one of the things you had to do was, was pre check the car before you took it out. So uh, the lad I was on the course with, we said we'd checked it and didn't. The three and a half litre Rover and we set off to the motorway and there was all this rattling. So <laughs> the guy who's the driving instructor says, pull over, let's check what that is. So we got out. He already had a red face when he was at the front wheel looking at us. Uh, it went even redder because we hadn't tightened up the wheel nuts. Now, had we ever got going on the motorway, that wheel could have come off. That's literally right? Well, we hadn't got on the motorway. What I'm saying is it started rattling before, before we got there. thank God. Now, that's the whole point of having a vehicle check every morning, to make sure the vehicle's safe. And that brought it home to me. you know. But again, I was like cutting corners by, uh, we've, we've done it. And he come, says, have you checked the car before we go? Yeah, because they'd leave you to it to do it uh, and trust you. And obviously, we hadn't, and that's what happened. So I knew every time after that. Check the car. Yeah. So I passed the advanced course. Uh, went to Salford Traffic then, so I worked there for 18 months. Um, obviously, got involved in a lot of chases and things like that because they used the, the, the traffic department for that. What
1: was the craziest chase?
0: Um, I had one, uh, one guy who, uh, if you've got an advanced ticket, you don't like to have any PVAs on your record, police vehicle accidents, yeah, because you see yourself as a bit of an elite driver. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, I was on Eccles New Road uh, on nights and a motorbike went flying past me. So I went out after it and I could see the number. So I gave it to the control room and it came back to an address in Salford, but not reported stolen. So I had the blue lights on and everything and he wouldn't pull over. So I chased him and I put it out of the radio. So there was other patrols making the way in. All you can think of is it's been stolen perhaps and not been reported yet. So eventually we get to an address in Salford and uh, I'm right up behind him. And we pull up into a side street. He gets off and doesn't put the bike on a stand, lets it go. And it falls onto the front wing of the three-litre Capris that we had then, which were beautiful cars. Three-litre Capris. Capri. Yeah. used to call them the uh, uh, jam-butty cars. They were, they were white <laughs> with a red uh, stripe down the other side. And he let it go and hit the wing of my car and, and crunched the wing. So he ran off into the house. So I was out of the car, went in after him, and I realised there's a party going on. And he'd run into the hallway and into the front room. Loads of people there, but I hadn't lost sight of him. And I grabbed him, dragged him out. Yeah. Now, that could have gone one or two ways. With those cars then, when you're on traffic, you didn't have a personal radio on you. You had the radio in the car. So I'd been giving a commentary about where I was, but I didn't then tell him I'd got out of the car because my mindset was, where's he going? Mm. Especially when he's just damaged my car. And I was in and dragged him out. Now, they could have attacked me in the house. Nobody would have known where I was in the control room. Um, but I got him outside and uh, and the joke was always, after that got reported as a police vehicle accident, even though I hadn't, you know, hit him just because of what he did. And uh, they always used to joke, you know, that I'd hit him and knocked him into the living room. <laughs> 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 That's how he ended up there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know... Uh, That was was great. That was where it got the adrenaline going as well when you're chasing people like that. Um, So uh, I went from there. And then an advert came up for the motorbikes. So I went and did advanced motorcycle, uh, which I loved, you know, being on them because the buzz you get from that on those big bikes, especially with the uh, horns and the the blue lights. (laughs) Um, And I also did my Class 1 HGV, which came in handy later when I became an undercover officer. Um, but it wasn't for me. If you see what I'm saying, traffic wasn't for me. So, uh, whilst I'm on the bikes, it was an advert again. And I, I, I want to stress, I'm not getting these because I know people. Mm-hmm. I'm putting in for them like everybody else, but I, I go and have the interview and I, I got was successful. So another job came up for the regional crime squad, which, uh, is now national crime agency. I think they're called. came the national crime squad and that's national crime agency. So, um, I put in for that and had the interview. And it was one of those departments where you couldn't read up on what they might ask you for the interview before you got there because um, you didn't know. It was very hush-hush. And what they do is they do, um, or they did, uh, surveillance. So they would have a full surveillance team. And if they got intelligence that you, Sean, was up to no good, they'd put a job together and we'd be following oh, you then. We'd, we'd, <laughs> we'd, we'd obviously invariably pick you up at your house or where we knew you were and we'd be following you. And you've got to be an expert at that that, because the biggest time you're going to get picked up on is when that person leaves the house because that's when they're expecting the police to be looking at them. Once they get away from the house and you've done everything right and they're happy, they don't look as much then and they're away. They get on with what they're doing. So um, one of the things they asked me was at the interview, would I be happy to go round the roundabout the wrong way, you know, as a surveillance motorcyclist, which is a bit of a weird question. But I just said, oh, you know, I would be, as long as it was safe. Because you don't get a license to go killing people when you're mm-hmm. driving like a lunatic. Like that. So uh, I got the job, moved on to the Regional Crime Squad. And uh, one of the big jobs that was running at that time, which wasn't a surveillance job, but it was Operation Belgium. And that was into the armed robberies in Manchester um, at the time. And it was uh, two people, members of the team. main members was uh, Fred Scott, Lenny Pilot. And they were doing armed robberies every week. And they were called the, uh, the Crazy Face Gang because they used to wear, the, you know, the rubber masks of old oh, men. wow, yeah. So they would have them on with sawn-offs. And imagine that, how frightening that must be. And uh, a guy who was in the office at uh, Bolton on the Crime who I refer to as uh, Harry, um, uh, he's the guy who, who then went on to run the undercover unit I became attached to. Uh, he was a DS, Detective Sergeant, in the office. And Operation Belgium was his was his operation. Um, now, they'd got away with, and this is why James Anderton put uh, armed responses on the, on the streets in Manchester for the first time because of what they were doing. So um, Henry, um, who, who I'm talking about, put an operation together, Operation Belgium, and uh, it was very successful, obviously. They, uh, two of them turned uh, supergrass and talked about the rest of them. Um, and they got like 14 years apiece. Um, but that was a fantastic thing to be involved in and, and watching uh, and, and see how the whole process went down and how they were interviewed. Uh, and then I went to the trials after mm-hmm. where they, as supergrasses, were giving evidence against their co-defendants and people thought they would never do it to stand in the box and face those you've been a member of the team of doing armed robberies. You've got to have some balls to do it. What kind of security did they have? Well, there was armed response. I used to go in the back of the vehicle in the van with uh, uh, Fred Fred Scott uh, from where he was housed to Lancaster. They they held it in Lancaster because of corruption. They didn't want it anywhere in Manchester. And uh, we went to Lancaster every day with an armed escort uh, into the prison, uh, into the courts there, straight in. And I watched him him give his evidence against them all. And, you know, he got uh, 10 years um, and another eight years for being involved in that, but concurrent with his 10 years uh, and new identities when they came out, Mm. you know. But they they cleared up all those armed robberies. It was a fantastic job. Um, But, you know, another job uh, we did uh, was a team from Salford who were doing uh, cash-in-transit vans. So the information was they were at one of two addresses when we turned out in the morning. So you can't be... Everywhere. So we had to split the team into two. So half the team went to one address. I went to the other address with a car which had two officers in. So there's the car, me on the bike. Sod's law, these two come out from the address we are at. So we're on the radio then telling them to, get to make it up and come and join us. We go off down into uh, Trafford Park in, in uh, Manchester and we get to Trafford Park Road. There's a bank on the left and a cash-in-transit van. So they go past as they're looking at it. They don't know where they're now following them. And We're being a bit more discreet because we've not got a full surveillance team. But they, they do a left by the pub, which is still there now. Uh, drive to the bottom, come round, park up again. The passenger gets out, makes his way around the back of the pub, across the croft, to the to the uh, cash and transit van. Attacks the guard, grabs some bags, and he's off. Now. Those two in the car who are watching this, the passenger gets out, rugby tackles him in the middle of the road. The bags fall and there's money everywhere. Now, the driver of the car helps him because he's trying to get away, isn't he? Now, the only person who's left is the driver in the car who's round the corner and can't see what's happened to his mate because he just sat there with the engine revving waiting tight. to get off. <laughs> so I, I came... And the bike is normally protected on this uh, surveillance. They don't want anyone to see it, or but needs must... So I came around the corner and he sat there. I didn't look at him and I just pulled up and there's this pub on the left. And I got off and I looked like a courier I've got a leather motorcycle suit on, crash helmet. And uh, I looked at the pub and I could see the window was open. So I just said to him, you haven't got the time, have you, mate? And he uh, went to give me the time, put my hand in, grabbed the keys, turned it off, pulled them out. So what's he thinking? Something's not right here. Mm. And then uh, I told him who I was and it's then fight or flight. He opens the door and he's trying to have a go. So uh, I'm wrestling with him. And Eventually got him on the floor and I just lay on top of him. And I was sweating like a pig because I had this leather suit on, crash helmet. Eventually the rest of the team arrive and they, they get arrested. And uh, they been, uh, they got convicted of numerous cash in transit. But what a great thing to have, you know, to, to be part of and mm. see them do a job like that. They can't say, we didn't do it. You know, you've gotten by the nuts when you're doing that sort of work and, and you can see how you get a buzz from that i want to move on to the next yeah. one so it was absolutely fantastic i loved it um so i did uh, three years on there uh, doing similar jobs to that i mean we, we picked one team up in manchester early morning we ended up in london later that night and they were trying to break into a country house so got arrested for burglary there you know so these are the things that go on that the public don't know about yeah they, you know said earlier about the police doing good work this is what it's about. And you don't, you don't get to know about that. But these people are being arrested as a result of officers doing that. And, you know, your home life takes a back seat. Because I would go to work with a, an overnight bag because I wouldn't know when I was coming home again.
2: What was your home life back like then?
0: Uh, I was married then. I uh, didn't have children. But, no. you know, for my wife to be, and not being able to get in touch with her all the time, which got worse when I became an undercover officer, because then I'd be away for days weeks on end she wouldn't know where I was and you know you know what her. you're thinking no. as, a, uh, as a spouse where is he and why isn't he rung they, they think you're off partying somewhere or
2: I've always had a theory that officers should date officers
0: officers should date officers or be with officers because well, of well, I would say to you undercover officers shouldn't be married no <laughs> and from my experience no. not because I, I don't want to be married what I'm saying is what I blinkedly thought was just my problem became my wife's problem, my children's problem.
2: What was it your wife did?
0: Uh, she worked for uh, customs and excise.
2: So she said I got a relatively normal job. And but, you know,
0: to, they can't comprehend it because they don't know what you're doing. You, can't, you don't want to tell them everything because they wouldn't want you going to work. <laughs> if you told them some of the people you're involved with, yeah. they wouldn't want you going to work. So you, you don't tell them and you're carrying all that baggage yourself. Mm. Certainly as an undercover officer because a lot of the time you're on your own. You know, um, so it's very hard for your family. This is why I'm saying perhaps it would be a good thing if you were single. Yeah, because you don't yeah. have anybody else to worry about. Yeah, but you know what happened to me later on in, in, with GMP. I know now affected my mum because mum had a heart attack as a result of it. Wow. You know, and I've got a card in my book. There's a picture of a card she sent me, which she wrote at that time, which I found some years after. Oh. You know, in my personal stuff. That's why I've included it in the book, in the in the picture thing about, uh, so um I forgot where I went there, Shimon. It was all over the <laughs> show. Can you s- get you grab
2: a
3: jacket? Yeah, yeah.
1: Were you, you seg were it? you segueing into becoming an undercover then? How old were you when you became an
0: undercover? Um so let me just work that out. Uh, I was uh thirty thirty something.
1: Thirty something. Yeah. So that's almost fifteen years in. Mm. Had anything major happened before then that we've not covered?
0: Not really. Uh, no, you know what? I mean, <laughs> my, my whole thing is about you, you couldn't get anything better to me than the undercover side because you're really dealing with major crime. You're not dealing with people who pinch bottles of milk off a step. The, the undercover aspect is the last tool in the police toolbox that they use. You know, they're not using it lightly. So you are going to get involved then with a lot of major stuff. And, uh, you know, although the regional crime squad uh, dealt with major crime, I was there as a surveillance operative on that, which was a great thing to do. Um, And, and, uh, you know, I learned a lot from that. What I like to think is I took uh, what I learned from each thing I did to the next thing I did, which is when I said to you earlier, you know, to stay in one place all the time isn't necessarily a good thing. No. You could become quite staid, I think, in your ways. You've got stimulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of those then become uniform carriers, which is a term they used to use years ago. Just a uniform carrier. You know, you're not getting anything out of them. Whereas I like to think, you know, if you look at my record, they've, they've got everything out of me, every department I went in.
1: So Neil Woods then, who we interviewed, he specialised in going undercover to infiltrate drug gangs, mm. like the, the Burger Bar Boys and things like that.
0: Did you have a niche uh, not not necessarily no because uh, my my persona was as an armed robber, that, that's what oh, I mean. he was an armed robber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and it was horses for courses. You know, I couldn't be uh, an undercover officer dealing with uh, as a paedophile. No, I, I couldn't do that. Uh, so, to so, so you, you know, you've got to be something you are happy in your skin with, and uh, it's you know it's what you portray yourself as. Now, you know, I couldn't be. Uh, a user of, of drugs because I was, I was 17 stone uh, at, at my peak. Do the
2: undercovers who go in as users have to use? No,
0: no,
3: no,
2: no they no, don't. No, no, no.
1: But there are circumstances where if they've, they're put to the test, they're going to have to. They're authorised.
0: Well, then, then you see, you're in a situation where you know you, you've, you've got to make an on the spot decision, haven't you? I mean, I, I dealt a class A drug to a to a guy in my side because I had to. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's well. I, I've I only admit that in the book. I did it, but I didn't have done it. I might not have walked out of there that day. You know, so mm-hmm. who's going to prosecute me for that?
1: Give us that story then.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, perhaps I'm jumping ahead on that. Oh, okay, yeah, let's go back. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I finished on the regional crime squad, um, and the big problem then was football hooliganism. So the guy I've referred to as H was a detective sergeant on the regional crime squad. I got on very well with, always got on his jobs and he was the only undercover officer in the area at that time. So I got to see his undercover operations, learned a lot from that. So then I uh, finished on the regional crime squad, went on the dedicated drugs unit at Preston, which saw us covering Lancashire, Cumbria. And um, I've said it in the book really, I didn't enjoy it as much as, it was a lot of, if you went to Cumbria, a lot of rural areas. Sat watching farm buildings, you know, from a distance. So it, it didn't have the the get up and go things that I needed. So I did two years on there, and asked to come off. <laughs> but I'd also at that time passed the sergeants and inspectors exams. So I thought I'd go and get for promotion. So I had to come back to the force, uh, and I went in the CID at Farnworth, and I was uh, working there one Saturday and in the uh, in the canteen was H running around. I've not seen him since I left the regional crown squad. And he was obviously on an operation and he was like a ferret uh, <laughs> running about. And uh, Yeah, so I bump into HH. And he's on an operation and it transpires. It's this football hooliganism. And, and uh, with the problems uh, with uh, football hooliganism in the 80s, you had the Hazel Stadium thing where 39 were killed mm. as a result of the Liverpool fans rushing. Yes. The Italian uh, fans, a wall collapsed, 39 died. Uh, there was another one, Luton and Millwall, where they ripped up seats, started throwing them at the police, and a fifteen-year-old was killed there. Mm. So Maggie Thatcher wanted something doing. So uh, H-, H got involved in this and was tasked with setting up a undercover unit to infiltrate football hooligans, uh, and that is how Amiga was first started in GMP. So his chain of command. He was then an inspector. His chain of command was directly up to Assistant Chief Constable, so there was nobody in between, which is unusual in the police because you'd go Inspector, Chief Inspector, Superintendent, Chief Superintendent, Mm -hmm. before you got to anybody of that rank. All that was cut out. So hush-hush, was it? Mm -hmm. And they were doing a job on uh, Bolton Wanderers, which is why he was at Farmers that day in the canteen. It was a Saturday. And uh, they had success with that. They did uh, the governors from uh, Manchester City, so they infiltrated them. And X amount of people got arrested and charged. But it was all through Maggie Thatcher wanting something done, And um, I then uh, bumped into him there. I was intrigued. And uh, I knew where they worked from, which was a little desolate police station. They worked in the attic. Nobody was allowed up there. And it was just the undercover unit up there. So I happened to go in one day and I walked up and H was in, in his office. So uh, I had a chat with him and uh, I said I was interested. How do I get to? So it, it was a sort of job that was never advertised like other jobs in the police. So he had to go on the deep infiltration course. So he said, I'll see if I can get you you know, to go on the course, but the, the proviso is you have to pass that course just because we know one another. Doesn't mean to say you're gonna get through, you've got to pass it. So I was happy with that. Anyway, I got on the course, passed it and uh, got transferred into Amiga uh, in 1990. Um, in February and at that time they were involved with um, Manchester United football hurling Uh, so I was down then to go as a as a undercover officer on that job so my first day you know I feel great because I've passed the course I've got on the in the office and they show me all the intelligence I'm going through it and I know one of them (laughs) (laughs) one of the targets I know so Uh... if I was to go and do that job, the chance of me bumping into him. Now I've got to, I've got a choice now. I either tell him, this is my first day. I tell him, and what use am I to them then? Or do I just ride it out and think, might not bump into him.
2: So he knew you were in the He would know who yeah. I was yeah. if he came across me. Right.
0: And uh, what's the chances of bumping into him? And he Aye. featured, he featured in the intelligence as a, as, a, as a associate of one of the main targets. So there's a good chance, isn't there? So I felt like I'd fallen at the first hurdle, you know, Mm. but I had to declare it. So I told them anyway, what I then did was, was go on the overt side. So when the operation was running, I was doing filming and things from different locations. So I didn't get kicked out of the office. I got kept in and did that, but I felt I was gutted, obviously. But an example then of where this could have come to bite me on the backside after was uh, in in Hume is a pub called the Grey Parrot. And there was, and that is where all the United faithful uh, hooligans used to go on match day. And we had a, a, a an observation point where we'd be filming it, and it was it was so um, um, unusual. When you see the pub at the front, and when they all the shout goes up to go, they'd all come out, and you wouldn't think you could get so many people in a pub. It was as if they were coming out, going around the back and coming out again. Mm. There was that many in there. And on this particular Saturday was 200 mm. cover officers from our, our office. Um, and the shout goes up to leave. And uh, they come out and they start walking. Tony O'Neill was the main one there. He's, he's brought a few books out. Uh, the Red Army and the Men in Black. He was seen as the general of uh, the United hooligan setup. Um, so he puts the shout up, we're off. And when they say they're off, they're off into the city centre to look for opposing fans. Mm. That's the point. So there's two undercover officers in there. We're filming. They come out and they're walking off through the estate through Hume to go to Manchester. They get in there, they're walking along. Next minute, shout goes up to stop. And then there's got a couple of suites with us. A couple of suites. So everyone's looking. What they mean is, got a couple of police officers. Mm. So them two were identified as police officers. And that's what they were referring to when they said they got a couple of sweets. Yes. And they uh, kicked hell out of them and uh, left them. And they, they had to or, in, went to hospital. You couldn't intervene or anything, obviously. Sorry? You couldn't intervene or anything, No, well, obviously, they're, they're, they're in the estate here now, so you, yeah. you couldn't see everything. But they got a good kick in, sent to, uh, to hospital, obviously, after. And they just carried on, went and did the business in Manchester with the opposing fans. Now, the point I'm making is, when I said, if I hadn't have declared... Mm. That I knew that guy, that could have been me getting that kicking. So I rule, you know, I rule the day not Saying, "Thank God I told them," because that that puts an end to that sort of operation in some ways. You've got to get somebody else uh, involved. Mm. You know, was it determined how they knew? No, no, it wasn't because you can't go and speak to him and said, oh, "How did you find out about him?" <laughs> you know, just before we'll put another one in so we don't make the same mistake again. Um, but you know, as police officers. The good thing for me was I'd worked outside of GMP. I was on the Regional Crime Squad, dedicated drugs unit, on a surveillance unit where nobody ever saw your face. So I was out of the system for a good while. Mm-hmm. So to become a, an undercover officer later was great for me. Because any one of them two who got kicking that day, there could have been someone there who said, Know him? I, I can see faces now from years ago. And I know, I'm, I'm excellent with faces. I always remember people or voices. You know, I can hear a voice in the distance and I think, I know
2: that. I great to faces, but crap with names. Well, yeah, I can't remember, not,
0: I, I can't remember the names, Beryl. But, uh, Beryl? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, the reverse works with villains. Them two police officers in Manchester, they could have dealt with one of these who was in that crowd and not known about it. And then they see him, they go, then they're telling Tony O'Neill. So, right, let's go. And they get him out, get him into an estate where there's no one about. You can't see much. Give them a kick in, and they're off. Yeah, wow. but they're also sending a message out to you, aren't they? Mm. You know, and that that could happen any time. And you know, it could have been worse, couldn't it? Could have got stabbed or whatever. So, uh, lesson to be learnt really with it. Um, and you know, on, on the, uh, I'm big into NVCS. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Non-verbal communication. <laughs> so I'm always looking at that, and and that says a lot to me about people. So. Part of that um, deep infiltration course is being depoliced. So, police officers have mannerisms and things they say regularly, and it makes them stand out as police officers. Villains will have things they say regularly. You, as, as doing this, will have things you say regularly, you know. And uh, I, I can look at people and think, hmm, and you weigh someone up on it. So, what the whole point of the deep infiltration course is, is to depolice you, which makes sense, doesn't it? If I'm meeting you today, Sean, and you're trying to sell me some, some gear. He
2: does look like a salesman today. You, know, you, you you're,
0: you're you, if you're in your role as as a, as a drugs dealer, for example, yeah. you're happy there, aren't you, sat there? Because all you're worried about is that the police don't come through the door. Yeah. So you're happy as you are. When an undercover officer comes in, they are not who they say they are. So they're not as at ease, perhaps, as you are. But you, if you're looking at it, might pick something up. So on that deep infiltration course, we had one officer who came on it, who went into a pub in Hume, which he thought, and this is how the course was uh, run, was a real-life situation. And it was sold to them that, we've got a low-level li- low job here, but this person's selling something in there. We want you to go in, see how you go on. So they think they're meeting real people, yeah? which gets the bottom going, obviously, you know, it's low-level. Because uh, you don't want to cock it up, do you? You want to do a good job, you're know, on the course. So they go in, they're in these surroundings in Hume meet these uh, so-called targets, who are really police officers. And uh, they've got something to knock it out, obviously. So he goes in, this particular lad, and uh, they offer him whatever it is. And he says, uh, right, uh, I'll go make some inquiries. Now, who, who uses that terminology? Police. <laughs> mm.
2: I'll
0: go make some inquiries. And the other thing he did was he rocked on his feet. What you know, do you mean? Like police officers. Went, went, oh, what? Like in the, in the, the past. Yeah. In the past, it was, oh, no, police i on the stood on the street. They rock on the feet man and its little mannerisms mm-hmm. uh, and 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 you know if you if you have them and they're instilled in you as a police officer from going through bruce yeah you you, be, you 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 are a certain way so you've got to get rid of that baggage and not stand out as a police officer before you even open your mouth mm. otherwise you might as well walk in to that drugs deal with a uniform on
3: mm.
0: for all the good it's going to do you yeah because once you i meet you and you're happy with who i am or you think I am? We're off and running then, aren't we? So that's the whole point of being de-policed. And MVCs stand out a mile. You know, you've, you've got to be sorted with that. Otherwise, you're not going to get anywhere.
2: How easy did you find it to, to de-police and slide into your new I found bill? it. I found
0: it quite easy, but I put it I put it down to, uh, like Shay. You know, Shay's from colliers You know, his upbringing, uh, when you have him on, he's. it's like... I just knew what to say, what to do, an act, and that's what you're doing. You're an actor. Yeah. Yeah, you're an actor playing that role. And uh, it depends on how well you play that role as to whether you're going to have any success. And there'll be some people, and I say this, there'll be some people out there, police officers, who would, who A, wouldn't want to do an undercover officer's job, and B, couldn't do it. Mm. As long as they've got all in the backside, <laughs> they, they won't be able to do it. And, uh, you know, and it's horses for courses. I mean... When I was in there, uh, when I started in there, there were six undercover officers in a force of seven and a half thousand. Mm-hmm. So you're one of a very few. And I'm not. I'm not saying that blowing my trumpet, mm-hmm. you know. I'm, I'm saying it because it's fact, and and, and to have success, which uh, I did, and all the jobs, I did, <coughs> oh, it, it, set, it counts for something, doesn't it? And um, yeah, I'm big, I'm big into MVCs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll never. Be talking to somebody like you, if I was meeting you today, I wouldn't be looking away. I'm going to give you eye contact. <laughs> Answer. I'm going to give you eye contact. Because if I was looking away, you're thinking, "So up with him? Sketchy. Oh, I'm not happy with him. Don't like him. And uh, the last job I did in there, which I'll come on to later, the informant didn't like the undercover officer, so he wouldn't introduce him. So then I got the job, got on well with the informant, and then... Now, I got on well with him, perhaps, because I was more on his level. Mm. You know... He or she, informant, has to be happy with you. They're putting their life on the line with what they're doing, introducing you as a police officer. Not as a police officer, but as a villain. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. this is PC thingy. He wants to buy some drugs off you. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean that. Um, What was your first undercover role then? uh, So, um, obviously, uh, I fell at the first hurdle with uh, United. um, But then... The Met had had major problems with their logs of evidence for because they were doing all the England uh, uh, home and away games, you know, for football hooliganism, and they'd had uh, a lot of questionable things about their logs of evidence. So the FA took the contract away from the Met, and because of the success Amiga had had with Bolton Wanderers, Manchester City, they gave it to uh, our office. So on the day I joined in February, I was told I was going to Italy in in june as an undercover officer so the the uh, having worked on um the manchester united job as an over officer uh on the 9th of june i remember the date precisely because my mum, my dad having died in 78 she got remarried that day and i couldn't go because i was going to italy so uh i flew out to um, sardinia uh that day and that was my first major role then um but bear in mind, I'd, I'd observed all the undercover jobs with H in the Regional Crown Squad. I'd done the course. So I was, I was more than beefed up, ready to go. Uh, and I'd been watching it overtly with the filming. So I flew out that day and I made the decision that night before I went to shave my head. I was going to ask that. Yeah, because, again, like I said to you before, you know, police officers look smart. It's half the battle before you even open your mouth. So if you look the part. So uh, I had earrings Looped earrings shaved my head I had a false uh, tattoos and um, we flew out on the, on the 9th of june do you remember Scott what you ta- stopped do you remember what over. your false tattoos were yeah. it was a uh, british bulldog and <laughs> a, an, an mufc because obviously manchester united football <laughs> what
2: but, were they, transfers
0: yeah but i had loads of them and i used to so make sure i had to doing... put them on the right spot because yeah when they start yeah, to look yeah, a yeah, bit yeah, old yeah. they look yeah really i up. mean I, uh, what's it you know um, what's he called the irish guy who did the chelsea headhunters um he, he did all these uh, undercover uh, documentaries. Uh, Irish fella. He actually had Chelsea football club tattooed on his arm for real to go and do it because he brought two of their main players down um, uh, from Chelsea. They got sent down as a little bit. But again, you know, he did that visibly when he went in the bars trying to get talking to him. You could see it. Yeah. So if you saw that, you'd think it's, it's, it's helping a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, we got I got stopped going out. From the moment we left, searched. Whereas if you went through with a pinstripe suit on uh, and your briefcase, it wouldn't bother you. So it's stereotyping again, isn't it? But I thought that was great because that meant it was working. I got there and uh, we were then living and breathing with the uh, England fans. So Uh, how did you just start talking to them? The the problem, uh, what what happened with England was that all English clubs had been banned from European games because of the Heisel Stadium. Um, and it, there was a possibility Maggie Thatcher didn't want them to go to the World Cup uh, in 1990 but they, they gave them a bit of leeway and said this is the big test for you now if if it all goes pear shaped in Italy that's it so uh, we went out there and we they put them on the island of Sardinia for the first part of the tournament because they were caged off there it's not like putting them on the mainland so uh, I think the first three matches were, were in uh, Sardinia and, um, but the, the locals treated them fantastically. There was tents put up, washing facilities, entertainment. Uh, but what, what did they do? They go, they go and ruin it. it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there was fights from, from the offset, you know, uh, but of a day when there was no match days, they would spend the day in all the bars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what do you do? You move around, you're going around, you're getting talking to people and, uh, in that, It's amazing in that relaxed atmosphere, in the sun, sat outside bars drinking and they see how you look. And then, Within you know, somebody or... else from Manchester might be there <laughs> and then you get talking to somebody else, then somebody else. And, you know, as you're there for all that time with them, the, these associations build up and, uh, and then you get to know what's going on. And uh, what we had was um, a control room, which we would have to get to a phone box to ring with a... Uh, um, code word so that they knew who was ringing, and then give them whatever Im- information we had um, and although it kicked off uh, on sardinia i mean they, they there was normally eight hundred police there, and they brought in three thousand two hundred off the mainland to make it four thousand police so you can you can see uh what they were expecting, and they were also tooled up you know uh riot gear um, uh, tear gas uh so they, they, they weren't going to stand any nonsense. And it did kick off. And I think in the first week, about 400 English fans got sent back. Uh, but the main trouble started when we got onto the mainland at Rimini. And um, we, we got there. And that's when uh, I was lucky in some ways because it kicked off in Rimini, big style, big riot. Although you could contact the control room about certain things and give them an odds up, there would be spontaneous mm. stuff that went off. You can never plan for that. And that particular day, that's what happened. And uh, it was like bricks, bottles being thrown left, right and centre. They were firing the tear gas and they were after you then. So I ran. I wasn't even with the others I should have been with. I was on my own. And I was on this road. I took pictures, which I've got in my book. It sounds daft, really. You know, I am to have a little camera with me. And I, I, once a policeman, always a policeman. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ran and this tear gas was coming. There was bottles and, and rocks flying. And I stood against the wall because my, my philosophy was don't have to worry about what's behind me then. I can see what, what's in front of me. And I stood there and a lad who I don't know stood next to me, same, must have had the same idea. And he stood. And then I heard him shout. And when I looked, he'd been hit in the face with a, a rock and, and he went down on the floor. Now, that could have been me. Mm. You know, I could have lost my eyesight or whatever that day. So what do I do? As a police officer, I should be helping him. But I'm not a police officer, I'm a hooligan. Mm. And uh, I'm, I'm now it's like survival of the fittest. So I ran off like the rest of them did. And we got into a pincer movement with the uh, Carabinieri and they got us on a garage forecourt and on the floor. And if you try to get up, they come over and beat you up. Or if you see you with a camera, they would smash that up. Mm. But covertly, I got a few, few pictures, which you can see in the book as well, with them stood over us with the tear gas on their rifles. Wow. And uh, we got arrested, taken to the uh, Nick. Uh, so that was one incarceration. How <laughs> oh, did you get out of the arrest? Because the... The, uh, the way it was set up, you'd have a, a welfare team. So if you went missing, they would know where to go and check then uh, and find out if you'd been locked up under your mm-hmm. false name yeah. and then you would be taken out. But not, let him out, he's a police officer, you know, yeah. in front of everyone. It would be done discreetly so that you could then carry on doing what you were doing. And I think a good example of that is uh, we went to Turkey, Izmir, and this is where I will stand up now for football, uh, England football fans we were in a bar in Izmir, and uh it was the night before the match we're all in there drinking no problem and uh not causing trouble to anybody next minute the window goes in and there was tables and chairs coming through the window and it like it was like a bomb had gone off so we went outside and they're all the turkish lot were there and they're like this Mm -hmm. to us you know slit your throat and then the police uh, came and uh, they they didn't want to listen to anything else who was at blame England so we all got arrested put on buses taken to the prison in in Izmir and I spent the night in there with about 40 of us in a cage and it was just a hole in the floor of the toilet mm. and it stunk to my heaven and now the thing about what I said to you before all the rest of them in there with you are real Joe Bloggs and real football hooligans you're a police officer pretending to be Joe Bloggs and you've got to keep that up then all night you know, whereas you might just want to go, oh, oh, do the break from that now. You know, and get me head in gear. So we didn't get out then to the following day. And the way it was done was you were taken off in groups to go to court and they wanted compensation for the bar. So we got fined. But when we left, they thought we were going to uh, court, but we didn't, we got took out. And then what a great talking point after, to be able to say, because we were really there with them. Mm. So you remember when we were in Izmir? <laughs> you know what I mean it's real it's yeah. real so you become even more of a real person to them lot yeah um, same as in uh, uh, when we went to uh, to um, the Euro Championships in Sweden Malmo uh, they, they put up tents there for everybody to live in and they ruined that they, they smashed the main shopping street up and uh, I saw an ITV cameraman with his big camera on his shoulder and they, they attacked him Uh, took it off his shoulder and swung it round and hit it on the floor and it smashed into bloody thousand pieces now they got arrested because we'd seen it could see who it was Um, but one of the things they did was uh, they were going to have another do with the authorities and they put a couple up on the beer tent jumping up and down and the the signal was going to be when they go to get them off that's when we're going to kick off and we fed that to the control room what did they do just left them up there (laughs) so it got diffused because they bouncing away up there, nobody comes to get them off. So that was the end of it. They came down eventually. So mm-hmm. that, by having the intelligence when you're in amongst them, side it out. So, um, yeah, I mean, that was a real, real eye-opener. And to witness some of those riots and what they did and how they smashed things up, uh, you see them for what they really like. And these people, some of them all proper jobs down in the week. Yeah, yeah. This is what amazes me. You know, you it's think like of what football hooliganism is. It's like a tribalistic thing, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and, and I've, I've listened to this mariner who was the uh, the guy from Chelsea Headhunters. He says it's addictive. It's like mm. drugs. It's like alcohol. It's an addiction. They love going fighting. and uh, I mean, they'd, they'd be on the phone to rival clubs. Who was a contact they have in a, the rival club they're playing that day. Where do you want to meet? Yeah. It'd all be set up. What they're trying to do all the time is dodge the authorities on the coaches, so that the police didn't intervene. But they were all ready, rumpers somewhere, and, and organising it. You know, it's not like they've just gone on the lookout for someone. They've gone, let's have these. It's been, it's been arranged. She's crazy. And one of the guys on the United job, who was identified. He works in the admin at Sesley Park Training School for GMP in the week. Yeah, at weekends he's a, he's a football hooligan. <laughs> So he got identified. So they come from all walks of life. Mm. And we used to have uh, a couple of come from Tottenham and they used to uh, come and stay with us in Manchester. Tottenham Steve was the worst and uh, he was a postman. He'd left his wife, three kids, left them because his whole world was Tottenham Hotspur. A uh, postman used to pinch the credit cards when he could, that were in the post, that would fund his travelling abroad. And uh, he came to stay with us one night and we went out and uh, we got back to the flat and I couldn't get him out of the car at the back, so uh, the rest of them come in, but he stayed outside. So I went in the house, and uh, through the night I was checking on him. I'm a police officer. I've got somebody in the car here. who What if I found him dead in the morning? So I had to keep checking on him. Anyway, next morning I go out. He'd peed all over back seat because he oh, he was, he was when he went to bed, and uh, and been sick. And then he came in. You know, the first thing he asked for a can of lager. So this is the sort of people you're dealing with, which go would go it goes against the grain with you. But you've got to laugh at that and think that's great. That's what it's all about, isn't it? You know, what was the story earlier
1: that you said it was going to come later that in Manchester, close shave?
0: Which one was that? Uh, got me thinking now.
1: Yeah. Uh, it was an on undercover one. Was it? Yeah. Mm. Well, said that's coming later
0: right i must come on to it then because I, I did the, <laughs> i did i did the football uh and uh you know i've had i've had a company from london approach me a few weeks ago to do a three-part documentary on that oh, really and i don't want to do it why cause, not because i don't want to talk about football Lillington. i want to talk about the main thrust of my book yeah no one wants to talk about masons things like that. that that's what it's about and i said to you before i won't be sad if if what had happened to me hadn't have happened i wouldn't be here talking about the undercover side because some people have said, haven't I mean, took a chance by doing this? Well, yeah, I have. But that's how much it means to me, you know, to get that story out there. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I came back from there. We did uh, uh, all the England uh, home and away games. So I travelled all over, went to Russia, um, uh, obviously Italy, Spain, Holland. So, you know, I got to go all over the show with it, really. <laughs> um, and it was, it, was a, it was great to do that, which then gave me a bit of a grounding for what I then went on to do. Because GMP could see the benefit with this Amiga unit of being able to use that in serious crime. Mm. Uh, you know, the infiltration technique. Uh, the big big difference was years ago, they used to do bus buys. Have you heard of that? So I could meet oh, you. Oh, yeah, Neil I well, could be introduced that, yeah. to you this morning and uh, you'd have some gear for sale. And later on that day, I'd come and buy it off you. Yeah, so then that was how they were doing it, bus buys. But then villains got a bit wary and they wanted to know that I'm really Joe Bloggs. So the way the Amiga unit did it was you infiltrate the community. So I would have a house, a car, uh, pubs where I could take you, and you'd know me as Joe Bloggs. So and they'd want to see that before we went any further. So that that's the difference. You know, you it was getting harder and harder all the time to convince people you were who you and, and if you've got about you, you're gonna to want to check that out, aren't you? You know, if I turn villain now. I know exactly what to do to check somebody out because mm. of what I've already been through and I wouldn't be happy and do anything. i talk any sort of villainy. until I was happy with who you said you were mm. uh, and that's how it goes. So we, we would infiltrate the community. So um, uh, that would mean, as I say, having vehicles registered to you at false addresses um, and uh, be able to take you to pubs where they'd know me as uh, Joe Blogs, and we could go in there, have a night out and you'd be more than happy who I said I was. Um, and again I've lost my thread there <laughs> so we're talking about uh, yeah I finished the football uh, and then they decided we could use this a more serious crime so I got the very first job in Amiga which was on the crime side and uh, when it was the football it was under X department in GMP which was uniformed operations that's where that department was under that's when H was under uh, immediate to the ACC CID in in GMP thought, this is great. We'll have a bit of this. So they moved it to the CID. So then his line of command went through the normal rank structure. He didn't have as much of a say in it as perhaps he should have done. So um, first job was uh, a team from Bolton who were were dealing in Amphet. So uh, they were using a a gym in in Bolton. So I started going there. Uh, Slow but surely, started to stand out. Got into one of them. Got talking, then realise you're on the same wavelength as them. And before you know it, I'm into them and I put an order in. They thought I needed some amphet for a record producer who was having a party at his house in Cheshire. So I took them and we had an office in the old, uh, where you used to go and tax your car in Stretford. There's an office block we had an office there and H played the part of the record producer. So I took these to this office to introduce them to him. We had a meet in his office <laughs> in this in this uh, taxation place and uh, he put an order in with them. So I took them off and then I met them uh, further down the line. They brought two kilos with them this day. It was in a black bin liner full of soil because they'd had it buried you know, in case any of the houses got searched. Mm-hmm. So uh, the idea was for them to put that in their car and follow me to Stretford. When I got there, they give it me. They didn't want it in their car. So, Obviously, the plan had changed, but it's only me who knows about it. So they're following me in the car, and I've got, because I had a mobile phone then, I had it in between my legs as I'm driving, trying to dial a number for the office to tell them what, what's happened. So we get to Stretford. They stayed outside on the main road. I drove in the car park. I went in, and it's being monitored now from all different angles. But they had, and it was well known, they would, they would try and get away if, uh, if, if put in a position. So the decision was to strike then take them out. And they went to the car and they tried to drive off. So they smashed the windscreen and the side windows, dragged them out and uh, they got arrested, obviously got charged. And and I got a buzz from that when I said to you before about getting a high, to have fooled those people that I was who I said I was and, and then get them arrested with the gear. It was great. So I was, on, I was on a roll then. And then uh, from that minute on, we, we started doing more crime jobs uh next one was in moss side uh, record, uh, a record guy, guy who had a record stall in the precinct um he uh i got introduced to him he was knocking out heroin and uh this is where i got called for being a bit of a what would you call it maverick because you have a plan before you go to meet these people and uh they they plotted up on on Moss Side Precinct, where the record store was. And the idea that day was I would go and meet him and come out. So they had no surveillance team. All they did was sit at the front and watch it. So I go in and meet him. We're having a chat. We get on well. And uh, he says, come with me. So what do you do? You don't go, oh, I can't come with you. What's he going to think? So I-, I followed him. And we went out through the back door of the precinct. And he, he, sh- he waved to a car. There was all private hire cars at the back the Afro-Caribbean guy who's driving it pulls up we get in we drive off so he's taking me now to the house of this fella called the Lizard if you saw his face you'd know what I meant <laughs>
2: why and, uh, yeah
0: and he, he's obviously part and parcel of the setup. so uh, we go to the house he comes out gets in the back and we're, we're off driving around and he's asking me who I know this is the time now where you're under pressure to convince him because also we had a police car behind us at one point now I know who I am and, and he's obviously looking back and thinking, what's going on here? But uh, again, he's in that normal domain, isn't he? So as long as your MVCs don't give you away and everything, and you stick to the uh, what you should be doing, it's not a problem. That day, uh, arrangements are made and I attend a house later on in the afternoon and the gear's delivered and they all got arrested. So again, another job where it went well. Mm. Um, and that was a Nigerian diplomat's wife, who was his neighbour, who had the gear in her house and she, on a phone call, brought it from there to the house where I was. When I went out to get uh, the so-called money, as he thought, that's when they went in and all the stuff was on the table. So uh, it banged banged to rights. How can they say it's not ours? It was his.
1: Did you infiltrate any of the Manchester crime families?
0: Uh, There was a a job at the very end, which was one of the major crime families in Manchester. Which um, also involves th- a bent police officer. Are you able to say which crime family? Uh, it was uh, connected to the QSG, as they're known, Quality Street Gang. Have you ever heard of them? Yeah. No. Yeah. Well,
2: what Quality Street
0: Gang? It's from an old um, uh, advert on the telly years ago. Right. Uh, your car used to pull up outside a bank, and uh, these uh, cartoon figures would get out with big crumby coats on. Glass dark glasses, fedora hats, walk into the bank, looking like gangsters. And then they go into the inside of the jacket, pull out Quality Street, <laughs> box of Quality Street. Couldn't <laughs> have that And they slot walked in uh, uh, somewhere in <laughs> a nightclub in Manchester, and someone made a joke saying, "It's the Quality Street gang," and and the, the nickname Stalk. stuck with them yeah. for years. Uh, so it was it was to do with that, um, and they were also connected to the uh, John Stalker affair. Which um, when I mention that in a bit, I'll probably fall into place. Yeah. Um, uh, did another job around the corner from the hacienda. Is that what I was talking about before?
1: Earlier, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: so um, got into a team there. They've just come out for uh, after uh, importation of drugs uh, through an informant. Got introduced to them. Started knocking about with them. Uh, put another order in for uh, ecstasy tablets, and uh, they were again with amphet. So it was the first time GMP had ever let any money go for a kilo of amphet. So it was like two and a half grand, I think, at the time. Uh, So I bought that at a house in Blakely. And if if you ever watched the video, they were out looking up and down, watching again for anything that's untowards. Uh, And they were happy, obviously, because they had the stuff brought in. I bought it, come out, because that went well. They were more than happy then. And this is where I had the wine bar around the corner from... And uh, if you you go down where the Hacienda was, it's all railway arches. Uh, And what they did was they made them into units. So I acquired this one. And the information to them was I was making it into a wine bar. So they would come and give me ideas about what I could do. Because they're thinking, Hacienda's here. We can make a lot of money here with the old drugs. So um, I made it out like I was listening to them. Yeah, we'll do that. Anyway, this particular Saturday, I put uh, an order in for six kilos... And they, were, they brought it to the unit. So what happened then was I was uh, inside. They brought it. Uh, I checked it. And then had a pre-signal um, I was going to give for the strike. So they're in the unit, happy as Larry, expecting me to get the money in for him, which was outside, which is why I've gone, to make the signal to whoever to bring the money in. And uh, I give the signal. Big truck pulls up. Truck squad get out. And they're in. I run off, leaving them in the unit. So what are they going to say at interview? Mm. It's not mine. Mm. It's him who's just run off. So as I'm running off up Whitworth Street, there's a backup team coming, arrest team, who don't know who I am. Oh. <laughs> so they think I'm one of the villains running off. Right. Yeah, because they haven't been briefed properly that morning. So they grab me and uh, I'm thinking, trying to make it look good here. So I put up a bit of a struggle. About five of them. <laughs> and uh, uh, I realised that they're not making it look good. They really think I am. Because mm. just the way they were talking and what they were doing to me. So next minute, they, k- they kicked my legs. I hit the floor, broke my cheekbone oh. and, and knocked my tooth out.
3: Oh. So
0: I get, I get dragged up off the floor, handcuffed. And uh, at that time, they're bringing these two out of the unit. So they see me. Put in, I'm put in the back of a police car, taken to Bootle Street. In the, on the cell block, they get brought in and the bot putting cells further down mm. and they uh shouting to me, get your mouth shut when you go for an interview. This mm. is what they're saying to me. Yeah. So uh, I get took out as they think to go uh, for an interview and uh, I go to hospital. That's when I get found out I've got a broken cheekbone. Mm. They get interviewed and as I said to you before, they say, it's not ours, it's his, his gear. So they commit themselves to a lie. And then this old, you know, Joe Bloggs, he's a police officer. <laughs> yeah, so then they're thinking, is that true or what? Because, you know, if it is true, we're knackered because of what's going on in the past. Um. So, you know, th- th- that was great. And what happened there was, because uh, of the cock-up with me getting cheekbone broke, it was then policy that on the on the morning of any strike from then on, they would take a picture of the undercover officers. So,
3: mm. that, so that
0: they would show it at a briefing everybody would know what you look like. Yeah. So that would never happen again. And all I said was, I want it in my record that you've done that to me in case I lose my eyesight and lose my job.
3: Mm.
0: And that was agreed. And, um, you know, so you go through things like that, uh, again, which I'm raising that issue because of what they did to me later on. You know, I did that and, and took it as... They, I can understand what they were doing. They might have uh, been... There's this thing about reasonable force in an arrest, and uh, it's another point I used to raise with students later on. You know, was, was was the force they used reasonably in them circumstances? To have five people on me, and although I was 17 stone, and putting up a bit of a battle, there was no need to do what they did. No. It's because they really thought I was a villain, you know, and uh, and I paid the consequence of that. So to me, that wasn't right. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I just took it as another experience and got on with it and uh, moved on. So, you know, that, that, was, that was great and that operation went well um, and everything was going fantastically. I mean, I, I did a job, we're talking about police corruption in a bit. I did a job here in Liverpool. Uh, at, uh, it was a guy knocking Edoin out again, involving a big team here. He had a cafe opposite Wavertree Police Station, right, of all places. It was about four levels, the, the unit, and uh, I got introduced to him and uh, we, we got on well again and we we're off and running. And uh, I put an order in for, for heroin with him, and ecstasy again. Uh, and uh, this particular day when the, de- the deal was going to take place, a uh, technical team had gone to Wavertree Police Station and immediately opposite his cafe was the, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, property store. So they had to drill a hole through the wall To put a camera watching the cafe for when I arrive later on in the day, so it was all filmed. Yeah, so that's the but it was on a need to know basis. This is the point. Yeah, so they don't go in and shout out to everybody at Wavertree Police Station. We're doing this. It's on a need to know basis. So that camera gets fitted. I arrive late in a big truck because he also thinks I'm into uh, uh, amusement amusement machines as well as villainy, and he wanted one for his for his uh, cafe. So I went and got one from a police club put it in the back of the truck and brought it for him to see. And uh, I pull up outside and um there's a lad who's pretending to be my brother with me that day. Now, because we've got all the money in the in the truck, he stays outside. I go in. And this Alan, who's in the cafe, uh, great, as relaxed as us, sat here. Everything's going fine. Well. He said, I'll make a phone call in a bit, have the stuff brought around. So I said, oh, great. You got a brew? Yeah. So we sat chatting. Anyway, his phone goes. So he goes off. Comes back to me with a totally different look on his face. He says, I've just had a phone call to tell him there's a camera over the road watching us. Now, I know that's true because of of the job, but I'm expecting them to say, I don't know who you are. Hmm. Yeah, but it was whoever's told him isn't sufficiently in the know to know that I'm a police officer. They've obviously got wind of the fact that they've been in and fitted a camera watching him. And at that time, there was a, a bent chief inspector called Elmore Davis, who was, had been head of the drug squad. Oh, God. And he, he, was, in the, he was in the pay of villains in, in that area. Uh, he, he, I don't know if you know the story. He was well into uh, one of the gladiators, Ahern, who was Warrior. Remember the gladiators program? The program, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. He, Warrior. He lived with Warrior in a flat. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, uh, and the phone call to the cafe was made from Wavertree Police Station, they found out later. Yeah, so this is how corrupt, when you talk about corrupt, and and when people call the Amiga unit, they call it uh, secret squirrels, and, uh, you know, laughing at them because of how hush-hush it was. This is why it needs to be hush-hush, mm. because there are corrupt police officers. And when you're going into a situation like, situation like that, it's, it's your life you're talking about. So, you know, and what I'm saying is, Elmore Davis was into, um, uh, like, Curtis Warren. Yeah. Uh, in his in his, uh, set up and and he was going for a promotion got it not back and he famously was on a documentary they were filming at the time when he got the phone call to say you're not getting made superintendent yeah that was on this documentary and his famous line was fuck that's what he says on the documentary on the telly right. and when he, means, when he says that he means well it's to you now the police I'm doing my own thing um, so what happens um, he's not unduly concerned. He says to me, "This happens all the time. They're always watching me." You know. So we make I clear off. He rings me in half an hour. We go to the rocket at the end of this sixty-two, here and it, they bring the gear there and they got locked up. So I got locked up there, took to the nick with them again. So I was locked up again there. Um, but you know, there's there's a case of corrupt police officers yeah. again uh, involved in in uh, that situation, and it was, it's frightening, really. Uh,
1: the drugs always flows because the black market in drugs gets bigger every year. Well, yeah, I mean... Uh, it corrupts every profession it comes into contact with. Yeah. It will corrupt some people. Yeah, The I mean, drugs I, never stop. It gets know, more prolific every year. And I read
0: somewhere uh, recently, I think uh, it, it was like $320 billion profit from, from drugs. Yeah, that's, yeah. And I also read at the same time it, it actually buoyed the financial market in 2007. Yeah. And that, that was, uh, you know, drugs money. Mm-hmm. It kept yeah. it, it, got them out of the, out of the mire. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because it was, it was writing about Escobar, I learned that drug laws made plants more valuable than gold. Yeah, yeah. So you can't stop it, but no, no 60, matter who you arrest.
0: You, yeah, you mm. can buy a plant that's $60. $60 a kilo. Sixty thousand, yeah. the kilo, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the
1: streets of and cocaine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you, was, you know, and these jobs
0: I'm talking to you about. Yeah. it was great because I mean, some of those people took them off the street, but you're not eradicating the drug problem because yeah. it just goes on and on. And you know, and that that camera that filmed that opposite Waverley Police Station that day, the funny thing about it was when you watch it after, those villains had their own surveillance team because <laughs> you, you could <laughs> see them. Yeah, as I pulled up that day and went in, there was these same faces walking about. Now what yeah. they're doing is they're looking. Is there anything unusual? Any police about? Is he, is he who he really says he is? They're still looking right up to the last second before you buy that stuff. And and it was so obvious on the, on the film. They had their own surveillance team, the <laughs> villains. So, uh, you know, there you go.
1: When did it become Masonic then?
0: Uh, right. Um, so I'd done that job. H was still in charge then. Uh, and then I did a job here in uh, on Granby Street, which was Curtis Warren's area. Um so just a little bit about that. Obviously, they're knocking out uh, heroin and and uh, and rock there, uh, cocaine. So Merseyside police saw that as an old go area for them. They'd even tried. If you look at Granby Street, there was some terrace houses, and on the gable end wall, they fitted a, a camera. And again, is it it's through Elmore Davis's type within the police? They got to know about it. They went in, found it, and they put a big arrow in paint. Like that police camera they painted on the wall. So, <laughs> so, so that, that's what, what they were like. So, so Merseyside Police come to GMP, to the MUGA unit, and says, we've got this problem, can you, can you sort it? Or do something. Because it was just an open market. But you wouldn't be in there if you weren't buying drugs. Yeah. So uh, they tasked the office with doing that. And uh, as an individual who was going to go on it, they said, you make your own mind up what store you're going to have for being on Granby Street as a Mancunian you know, buying gear. So what I did was I uh, had an old Rover with a tow bar police car and uh, I bought off a mate an old uh caravan which was only held together with cobwebs. It was horrible beige <laughs> with orange. And uh what I did was I painted on the side of it, landscape gardener. <laughs> yeah. And then the technical team at the office, they fitted cameras in the uh indicators on the front of it and uh, the car was fitted with audio, uh, and I had to remember before I went in to switch everything on. So when I drove into Granby Street, I did the very first buy on Granby Street, which was, again, you know, uh, Pampers time, because there was no no OP there watching me go in, because they couldn't get any cameras in. So I had to drive that long street to Granby Street, where they were dealing. There's a row of shops, Caribbean food shop and everything, and they also fitted a camera on the side of the caravan. So as I drove past, it was filming everyone's face as they stood looking out. And they're looking at this caravan with landscape gardener on. And, uh, and it, it became great for me because as from that moment on, every time I appeared on Granby Street, they knew what I was there for. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a calling card, which was great. So my idea was I'm a landscape gardener, not a professional one. I've got this shitty buddy caravan. Did anyone come up and ask you? No, 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 <laughs> no, no, not that. I didn't get that far, but it, it was a good excuse to be in Liverpool. So I'm doing, I'm doing gardening and picking my gear up while I'm there. So uh, I drove in and uh, I pulled up, and one of them came over to me. What are you after? So I told him I wanted a rock, you know. And he says, pull up in the side street. So I went around the side and try and reverse a caravan in a side street. It was a nightmare. So then I pulled up and, and basically what you then got was footage of his face coming to me and what he's saying because it's being recorded in the car. So he had a bag which he opened up and I had my choice then of what I had. Give them money. I'm off. And that was how it went. And we built up You had to get a deal off every one of them twice to prove that they were dealing. Uh, so I think there was about 35 arrested on that. Um, but to go in every day, another thing I was fearful of, once I got back off that first buy, if that was crap stuff, yeah, would you go back? <laughs> you wouldn't be going back then, would you? There's no customer services to go back to and say, yeah, I bought this yesterday, it's rubbish. <laughs> uh, so, But it was, it was good quality stuff. So uh, the operation went really well. Um, yeah, so uh, I did that. So then H left halfway through that operation. And we got a new chief inspector, a fellow called Ken Sen. I'll say that name again. Ken Sen, who came in. And up to that point, he'd been uh, no, no undercover experience whatsoever. Uh, he came in the office and one of the things he said openly was, I don't want any, uh, I can't say his name, any H clones in this office. So he hated the previous guy. I don't know why, but he did. Now, I was happy to be a H clone i learned everything off him mm. yeah it got me in the position i was in at that time so i didn't like him for that reason um but like one of the things we used to do in there was the cars covert cars were bought from auctions and then registered to false addresses from the moment he came in they were purchased from his mate in oldham who was a car dealer now what i'll question with that is has he been vetted by the police when he goes to the pub at night and says selling cars now to the police yeah. to use on operations. You know, who's he talking to? Is it compromising undercover officers? Yes, it is. Because you just don't know who he's talking to. That should never have happened. Uh, so th- that was what he was doing. Um, another occasion he comes in and he says, uh, we, had, we had covert properties everywhere. I want everybody to hand the, flat, uh, the keys in for the flat at uh, Salford. Uh, Regional Crime Squad want to use it on an operation. So everybody does, except for one lad who was off on leave. He comes back on the Monday, doesn't know about this conversation that's gone on, goes to the flat, tries to get in. It's locked on the inside. So he bangs on the door and uh, the door's opened and there's this guy in his underpants and it's uh, Ken Seddon's brother, who isn't a police officer, living there with his wife. So he's installed a member of his family in an undercover officer's house. Wow. Yeah. So just look at that, and again... Who's paying for the Who's paying the rent on that property? The, the police authority, via your taxes.
3: Mm.
0: Yeah, it's for the use of undercover officers. So you can't go putting somebody else in it. Yeah. So he did things like that. He went to uh, Italy in the drug squad's caravanette, which was an observation vehicle. Took his family to holiday in it. Gets clocked by customs going out. Now, if I'd have done one of those things, I'd have got sacked. Yeah. So you're going about masons now. I knew he was a mason, because oh. in his drawer, in his desk, I was looking for a file or something one day. There was his daggers and uh, his apron in the drawer. And I've also heard when he worked on a division somewhere, he was well known on afternoons for clearing off at night, going to the lodge meetings. Yeah. So the CID in Manchester, renowned for masons. yeah. Good example. Um, a guy called Peter Topping. Was made head of the cid when john stalker got um, suspended off the shoot to kill inquiry john stalker and i put a, a, an excerpt of it in my book from his he says had he not been suspended and been in force peter topping would never have got made uh, head of the cid because he didn't have the experience as a detective so uh, when he comes back uh, when he's acquitted john stalker he hears these stories about what topping's been doing And he gets him in. And what he's been doing is, he's been putting all his Masonic police officers in positions uh, in the CID. So all the fraud squad were Masons and all the drug squad were. And John Stalker says to him, it's come to me notice uh, this, you know, uh, is it right? And he says, "Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, And he said, "Uh, they are the only people I can trust. Uh, Based on everything else being equal, We'll always pick a mason above anybody else mm. so how can that be right if i go if you're a mason a police officer i'm a mason uh, i'm not a mason we go for the job and they go we're both the same in terms of experience and they pick you because you're a mason that, that can't be right mm. and he openly admitted it and said that that's what i'd do i'd do it again so again it shows you the corruptness within gmp of what went on there what was the dagger and the cloak like what was? The dagger and the cloak. It was just, uh, you know, these little daggers in a, in a sheath. Yeah. And, uh, and obviously one of these, they have all this braiding on them, don't they? The, mm. uh, the, the, the aprons. Are uh, they white? Is it embroidered? Uh, I can't remember the exact colouring of it. I mean, it depends on which lodge you're in as well, mm. I believe. So it's like, there's a lot of, I think, gold braiding on it. Uh, but it comes down to about there, doesn't it? And then uh, they have the gloves as well. White gloves. White gloves? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I knew he was. Um, and I also knew the head of uh, GMP CID at that time, Dave James was. Yeah, I also thought he was a good guy. So um, anyway, he doesn't want any H clones in there. So uh, <laughs> I do a job uh, with some Ram Raiders um, who were who were regularly uh, they used to take steroids and then go to a, a gym, build themselves up. And then the jobs they did was with ski masks. So they'd, they'd, uh go ram-raiding all over the northwest, Uh And uh, that was one job I did without an informant. So we had the information about them, but no informant. So I started going to the gym where they were pumping themselves up. And uh, I didn't speak to them. I just went in every day when they were there. And I got friendly with the owner. And I'd be bringing stuff in that they thought were knocked off. I'd be selling it in the gym. And I had a Maserati outside because they would go and pinch cars as well. High-powered cars to do the ram raids.
2: Seven nice miles
0: So I always left it at the front, and I left one day, and they are all looking out the window at me. You know, So they're either looking saying, I love that car, or he seems a bit uh, villain like us. So anyway, what I do was I could never go in as a ram raider with them because I couldn't be sat in a car with them while they're doing ram raids because they knocked a police officer over one night. Uh, and uh, imagine if it got in the press then that they killed someone and they had a police officer sat with them. So I had to go in above them. So I went in as a handler of stolen property. Yeah. So what I did was, got into one of them at the uh, gym and then I got into the rest of them and they started bringing all their ram raid stuff to me. A flat I had in Lee. So (laughs) I had to be certain to get there before they came, but they'd drop it all off at my house and it'd all be on video. Yeah. So... One of the last jobs they did was um, uh, a motorcycle dealership in Preston and uh, they, they had all the leathers away, all the helmets, all the boots and they rang me and said, Do you want it? So well, I'm not going to say no. So they brought it to me and this was just before the Easter, Easter holidays when we had the bank holidays. This is GMP again for you. So GMP weren't going to let any more money go to them. They wanted them arresting. So this was the day before the bank holiday. So what do they decide? We're no, there's no way we're paying double time to police officers to interview them. Yeah. So they wanted me to put them off till after Easter for payment. So how, how do you do that with these? Because they're, they're chomping at the bit to get the money. Awesome. Yeah. So I had to come up with a story and tell them some money was owed me and I had to go to London. So uh, they were happy with that because I'd built up a good, uh, you know, uh, personal set up with them. And uh that ruined my, my weekend then at home because I couldn't go anywhere because they're thinking I'm in London if by chance I bumped into anybody. Makes it out to be a lie. So it ruined it. And uh, I put them off till uh, after the Easter holiday. They all came to the to the uh, flat after I you know, got arrested. Um, now, that was a great success. And halfway through that operation, this Ken Sen got me in and said, your time's up now. Wow. Here. You go in. So I'm thinking, well, what's that about? Where am I going? So uh, he says, uh, I'm off for a week. I want you to think about where you're going. Come and see me in a week's time. So there was no no suggestion of me going on the welfare side. Yeah. Uh, but he, tape, he tapers it with, uh, you've been put in for the Queen's Police Medal for your jobs. And the lad who works as my brother on those jobs, who I mentioned earlier, he told him he was getting it. Now, the big difference between me and him is, I did six years as an undercover officer. He did two because he had a a child who was ill. So he had to come off and go on the welfare side. But the jobs we did together were very successful. Mm. So he told us both we were getting the Queen's Police Medal. So uh, I thought, something's not right here. So he he goes off for the week. And and as an undercover officer, you couldn't go to police functions, police courses, or police training uh, establishments. You had to stay clear of them all because you become de-policed. So I made the decision over the weekend to go to GMP headquarters and see the head of the CID, this Dave James,
3: because I
0: wasn't happy about what Sedna had told me. So I get there, uh, sat outside his office, and another chief super comes along and says, what are you doing here, Gary? So I told him. He takes me in his office. He said, that's not right. You're staying where you are. So I've seen right through now what Sedna was trying to do. He didn't want me out, because I think he thought, I'm not playing the ball with how he wants it to be. He was using that department for his own ill-gotten gains. Mm. Yeah. it was going to ruin it. So, um, obviously, I come away from there. He comes back after a week, doesn't speak to me. So, you know something's not right then, don't you? But I'm still heavily involved in the ram-raiding job. When it finishes, I spend two weeks transcribing all the uh, audio and video tapes for court. Then I head back to the unit. He ignores me for eight weeks, then gets me to his uh, in his office. He tells me to be there for two o'clock. I get there, quarter to three before I go in. I'm sat outside waiting. So uh, he gets me in, and uh, he, he he's telling me he's never thought about what he's going to do with someone as much as he is with me. <laughs> yeah, this is this is when I make the decision to covertly take take record of conversations because mm. I knew the wheel was coming off with this guy. I found him out in a lie. Yeah. He knows I have. And uh, so he says to me, uh, I had considered sending you down the road, uh, you know, stabbing you in the back, uh, but act in haste, repent at leisure, were his words. And he said, it doesn't matter who you go to speak to, they'll always side with me because that's the way the system is. <laughs> now, what does he mean by that? They'll always side with me because that's the way the system is. Yeah. So that said a lot to me then. So uh, he had to concede then that I wasn't going anywhere, which proved that he was telling lies. And he says, uh, you know, you'll be considered again now for for jobs. But I knew my cars were marked. So um, anyway, this job had come in now with a QSG, with an informant. And uh, the officer that chose to to do that met the informant, but didn't get on with him. And he wasn't happy to introduce him. So they came to me and uh, said... Will you, will you go in now? So I said, I can't, because the the rule was you didn't use the same name on any two operations. You had to set up a false legend. So uh, I do out a time to do it with what's happened recently. So he said, well, we've thought about that. Uh, you're going to use the same name as on the ram raiding jobs. And the way we'll work it is, uh, you uh, will go in, and once you get established, introduce another undercover officer, and the evidence will start from there. Only a judge at any future trial will know you are a police officer, so I thought oh, that's okay. So uh, I do it and uh, I get on with the informant, get into him. Um, I go to the London fashion show because they've got a, a rave uh, clothing business <laughs> oh, going as well. <laughs> uh, so I end up there, uh, and when it and I introduce this second undercover officer, and I had to be still present because we're waiting for an invitation of ecstasy from Spain where one of the family is. Yeah. When we're waiting on the invitation. So I have to still be there, even though I'm trying to distance myself. And he's now supplying my, uh, the second undercover officer with heroin when we go. But I was based in Newquay. Newquay, be- Because they could check me out. Although I'm from Manchester originally, I couldn't say I was living here now because they could check you out. So I got a, a flat in Newquay, <laughs> in Port Isaac. And I lived there and... We didn't have the system you would have now. But, for example, when, when we went and bought heroin off them, I'd have to get to Newquay because he always wanted us to ring him when we got back safe.
3: Mm. Yeah.
0: So if, for example, I'd have run from Manchester and said, we're here, he'd have said, hang on a minute, I've got something on here, I'll ring you back in a bit. He'd know I wasn't in Newquay. So we had to drive the six hours down there and ring him back because mm. uh, we're waiting for the invitation coming in. So... Um, that, that carries on, and uh, eventually uh, they, they get arrested. And there's dr- guns seized, uh, money, drugs. So uh, they all get charged. Uh, what happens with me then? I'm giving evidence um, for the Ram Raiders at Manchester Crown Court. And uh, I'm in the box waiting for the judge to come in in the afternoon session. And you give evidence behind screens, yeah? So the judge has got to agree to that. The only people who can't see you are people in the public gallery. Everybody else can. So as I'm stood in the box waiting uh, for him to come in, I then see these two guys below me, looking at me, and they're just writing. So I'm thinking. What are they doing? Anyway, <laughs> w- what's happened is they've put the Ram Raiders on remand at Strangeways and then put the people who were arrested from Operation Bluebell, which is the QSG lot, on remand at Ways as well. Now, those from Bluebell uh, should never have known I was a police officer. But what do they do? in uh, strange that they talk and they discover, because I'm using the same name, that I am a undercover officer.
1: I thought something like that was going to
0: happen. Yeah, so they come, and he. this is the defence team for Operation Bluebell, who are now writing my description down. So, judge comes back, their barrister, uh, a barrister stands up for the Ram Raiders and says, Mr. Glassman, uh, can I have the jury taken out or a point of law? So uh, they all go out. <clears throat> he asked me three questions. Was you during uh, uh, operation Vixen ever involved in uh, operation bluebell? So to ans- answer that, honestly, no, I wasn't because I didn't get involved in it till after. Yeah. Mm. So I answered them all to the negative. So then he says to the judge, uh, I want this thrown out because this guy's telling lies got a file here with his statement in for Operation Bluebell, saying he was involved so then the judge looks at how I've answered the questions and says I haven't done anything wrong but they already know now who I am yeah so uh, anyway the trial continues Uh, when I leave that night someone tries to follow us from the underground car park when they come out Uh, so the driver had to shake them off Um, they uh, they they also uh got private investigators to find out who it was. I only found that out as a result of finding a confidential report. They didn't tell me to my face this had happened, which puts my family in jeopardy. Mm. Uh, all they offered me was an attack alarm on my house to the local police station. <laughs> but considering there was corrupt police officer involved, do I want... You know, no. And all they said was that I was paranoid. Would, would you not be paranoid if you thought someone yeah. was looking for you? So uh, I ended up giving uh, me evidence and uh, I get discharged from court and I go off sick, so I'm off, 11 months. Yeah, so my time as an undercover officer then is finished and uh, they keep coming to my house, uh, uh, trying to get me back to work. I went from 17 stone to 12, Mm. ended up in the heart care unit, Uh, cameras Mm. up my jacksy because I had cancer. Uh, and what happens to Seddon? he gets moved overnight yeah because there was an anonymous letter went to the manchester evening news and to the force apparently about him so gmp move him overnight what do they do with him they send him as an ambassador to australia on an anti-corruption inquiry <laughs> anti-corruption inquiry and, wow. and and he gets sent back from there yeah uh, for irregularities when he lands back here he gets arrested and he was charged with 20, 20 odd offences of, dis- of dishonesty deceptions what grief. yeah now there's a guy who they protected yeah and they blamed me for his downfall so while I'm off sick going down to 12 stone I go on half pay in that 11 months uh I I'm struggling financially. I have to put in some insurance policies I had to keep going. Wife's saying to me, how are we going to pay the mortgage? I said, I don't care less how we're going to pay the mortgage. I haven't done out wrong. So uh, they backed me into a corner eventually. And uh, I have to come back to work, obviously. So in the November, they've offered me three vacancies. One's at video imaging unit. One's at um, uh, taking civil litigation statements. Uh, and others computers. I've got no idea about computers. I don't want to be going out, taking civil litigation, with members of the public who might recognize me, Mm -hmm. never know where you have to go. So I had to pick video imaging. Uh, they wanted me to come back in December. I said, I can't because by now I am depressed. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't realize was I had PTSD, Mm -hmm. not through being an undercover officer, but because of the way they treated me. Yeah. So, uh, I said, I can't come back in December. I'll have to come back in January after all the merriment's gone. So they agree to that. And uh, they say, a lot of work's gone into you coming back to work. You go into the video imaging unit, somebody will be there at 9 o'clock to meet you. By now, I'm in dire straits financially, I've got no car. I have to cycle to work. So I cycle the eight miles to headquarters, get there early, have a shower, parade myself at uh, 10 to 9 at, at video imaging. Woman on the counter says, uh, I said, "Is Ian Jakeman here?" So she said, uh, "No, he's not here till lunchtime." I said, "He's supposed to be meeting me." She said, he's "In America, he's coming back at lunchtime." So that's how much thought went into me coming back to work. Wow! I had to hang around for hours, and then I'm in that, and and I'm then put in a room with no windows, copy and tape tape recordings for court of evidence. That's what that's what I did, and. Uh,
1: you got sent to Siberia.
0: Yeah. Oh, hi, yeah. Uh, so they stuck me in there. I was doing that day in, day out. It was rotting my brains. But p- prior to coming back in the January, I rang my oppo, who was my brother, on some of those undercover jobs, because I felt a bit better. You know? mm. So I rang him. I have not spoke to him for 11 months, because part and parcel of my condition was I backed off from everybody. So, mm. so I didn't see any friends, family, I'd slot myself away. I could happily sit in a room in the dark, and be all right, or hang upside down in a wardrobe. And <laughs> I'd be happy with it. And uh, I rang him out of the blue, and he uh, after the nicest is he says, "Have you got it?" So I said, "Got what?" He said, "The QPM." I said, "No." He said, "I've just got it in the New Year's honours. So he got it. Now I just want to reinforce the fact: I did six years; he did two. He came in as my brother, and always came in second on the jobs now what they did was they shredded my application because they blame me for Ken Seddon's downfall it got shredded so uh he got it and I didn't so you can imagine how I felt that Christmas I went from going up there down here again imagine what Christmas was like I ate Christmas because my dad died oh yeah so imagine what my missus went through basically Mm. But uh, anyway uh, I come back in January I take out a grievance and part of the grievances why have I not got the QPM when he did? And yet I, I've done as much as him and more. Why were these other uh, commendations that was due before I went off? Why have they disappeared? Everything got shredded about me.
2: Yeah, disappeared.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I I submit my. Uh, I go and see the uh, um, complaints woman who GMP have on their staff for taking out grievances. And she advised me. Because you're in a civilian post now. Everyone else is civilian. You're going to have to cut that aspect out and go straight to the, your next line manager, which was head of CID. So I do the report, put it in his pigeonhole in the admin at Chester House. And uh, wait, two weeks go by, I don't hear nothing. Ring his secretary. He's not at it. So he's at it. She ripped it up. Mm. Then he blames me for not going to stage one, even though I'd been advised not to. So I go and see him. I'm tape recording these as well now. So uh, he um, says he can't talk about the QPM because it's uh, not protocol. But you, you were recommended. You might get it in 12 months, 18 months' time. You know, But you're still in. All they do, they ring every year and make sure you're still serving. They're just dangling the character. Yeah, So I thought, oh, that's all right. I took, yeah. took a bit of weight off my shoulders. The other things he said, they weren't worthy of anything. Yeah. He said, you've had enough commendations. So I said, well, I've earned them. So anyway... I said, I'm not happy with that. I'll go to the next stage, which is the civilian head of GMP personnel. Prior to him being in that position, it was always a chief super, but they then made the uh, decision to have civilians. So they brought him in from some company somewhere as head of personnel. So he's, he's as honest as the days long. I go and see him, tell him. He says, I'll go away and research this now. Come back and see me in a few weeks. I go back and he says, I've never been so embarrassed in my life. They won't let me see any files about you. <laughs> so they can't corrupt him. Had it been another chief super, they would able to get him to sing off the same song sheet, but they couldn't with him, so they just don't let him see any documents. <laughs> so he, he says, I've never been so embarrassed in my life. I've just come up against so many brick walls. I can't do about it. So what do I do? I've got no, no option but to go to the next level, which is Assistant Chief Constable David McCrone, who I go and see him. I go away for 10 weeks Go back. He's done nothing about it. I'm just told you're seeing things that aren't there. Yeah. So I'm still gutted now, i not I? I've not got the QPM. No explanation about it whatsoever. But what uh, Dave James shows me during his interview is a report which was put in before I went sick, recommending me for a commendation. And uh, he said the original went missing. So this has had to be reproduced. Of course. A new one. He hands it to me. So... It's been submitted by the inspector in Omega, dated, uh, for example, 15th of January. Uh, it then goes to the chief inspector for him to sign and date. So it's got now the, twi- the uh, 18th of January there. When I turn it over, it's got the chief supers. This is not worthy of anything, he writes. And it's, and it's got uh, a date stamp from him uh, a month before <laughs> the other two. So I, I hold up to the light. And I can see where they've tip the old date off <laughs> and then put a new date on it. And What's happened with that is when I went off sick, they've stuck that in a drawer. And it's only when I've come back and asked questions, they thought, I have to get onto this. We'll make out we've lost the original. So I've got this on tape and I say to him, what's this? I said, this is the original. And he went, he starts swearing, a chief super swearing, which I knew I had him then. So, uh, this is the stuff they did against me. And uh, mm. so um, I then I've got nothing to lose because I'm, I'm off the Christmas card list now <laughs> with, with the action of Tate. So uh, I got take it outside the force and I get uh, a police review. They did an article on me in that, which highlighted it. And uh, I then had a massive fight then um, where I was recording everything, Not even my phone calls at home. Uh, and I took them to task over it. Uh, and then... Uh, I was getting phone calls from the Home Office telling me to keep my mouth shut because uh, I'll come to notice for the wrong reasons. Uh, I got that on tape, um, but uh, it was all—it was all because they—they they thought I'd done the dirty on the chief inspector. He was a mason, mm. yeah, and got him shifted overnight. Don't mess with the masons. No. So this is what they did to me. So uh, I then uh, three years later get the QPM. Because I eventually, through going through the system, uh, get a one-to-one with the Chief Constable, David Wilmot. And when I get to see him, because what they do is they let the good stuff go up, they don't let the bad stuff. So I got to see him face-to-face, sat across the table like this. And, and I told him what had happened. I said, if you take nothing away from, more from today. Just believe that I wouldn't be sat here today telling you lies. I'm here because I'm telling you the truth. So he then looked into it and... Um, they uh, he, he resubmitted my application. So I then got it in 99, three years after I should have got it. Mm. So I go to Buckingham Palace, get it off Prince Charles and uh, I said to my wife at the time, the, 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 the icing off the cake's gone with this because it's only because I backed him into a corner. So that was that. I get it. I should be overjoyed, shouldn't I? Um, what I don't realise is I hate the police you now because of my PTSD. So I, I want to punch everyone. Yeah. Uh, anybody in authority in the police, I want to punch him, uh, which isn't a good thing, obviously, but they made me that way. And uh, it was obviously making me ill. So uh, I eventually get to a point where I've had enough and I go to personnel and tell them that I'm ready to resign. And uh, they moved me to a department in Chester House just to get things, trying to get things sorted. So, I'd been there three days, I was walking up the wall basically and I went to personnel to see my personal file. Now what you would normally do is ring them and they'd say, come in half an hour, we'll show you. And what they would do is take the stuff they don't want you to see out and give you the rest of it. And when you've gone, put it all back in. I arrive at the counter, fortunately there's a woman who's just started there and she's given it to me. So she's given me a desk to sit down at. And I'm going through it and uh, at the beginning it's all my initial application to join the cadets. Got my dad's handwriting on it. And, uh, it was like a, a memory, uh, like a going back in time, you know, and reliving it. And uh, I get to the front and there's a brown envelope, A4. And it's got on the back of it, only to be opened by a divisional or branch commander, this. And it had a piece of sellotape which had lost its stickiness. So the flap was flapping about. So I thought, it's in my file. You know, it says that. I'm going to read it. I opened it up. There's a report from a superintendent from my department. Eight years old it is, this it's to the ACC McCrone, who I saw on my grievance, who did nothing, telling him that I was corrupt and I was under investigation eight years before. Yeah, I wasn't to be trusted. I was paranoid. But basically saying I was corrupt and under investigation. And this is from eight years earlier. So that day, it was like the last bit of the jigsaw. Mm. I realised then what had gone on. So um, I uh, checked with the Y department to see if I had been under investigation which I hadn't. So uh, I put a report in then asking why it had occurred, what was the result of it, and why was I not told. And when you're under investigation of the police, they should serve papers on you, so you're aware. Never had anything like that. So I then get summoned to see the head of the why, the internal investigations, and uh, he says there was no investigation. All I can tell you is it was a sonic conspiracy. But mm. in the CID, it was an unofficial one. Yeah. So this is where I've got it from him. And when I later see Michael Todd, who becomes chief constable later, he says to me the same thing, a sonic conspiracy. Wow. Yeah. Against you. And that was from the head of CID. And uh they put a report in my file because I, I wanted something put in there to negate that what I'd found. And uh they put in saying it was um somebody effectively in the in the CID command halted my uh, recommendation for the QPM, shredded it. Uh, so it all came out in the end, mm. but all of them then have gone. They've all left the, the job. They're all there now on the big fat pensions. Of course, cool, yeah. And these are the ones who'd stabbed me in the back. Yet try to protect him, who later on down the line gets convicted of criminal offences and was corrupt. So you can, you can see why I think as I do. And why, yeah. you know, in terms of the undercover side and everything else, that, that's immaterial. This is what it's about, what these people in authority think they can do to people. Yeah. When, just to protect someone, because he's in a bloody uh, Masonic Lodge.
1: To hear it from you, Gary, is so powerful, because David Ike can say it, but mm. you've lived it.
0: I lived it, yeah. Mm. And, you know, it, it ruined, you know what happened to me? Because uh, of this PTSD I I have a red mist comes over me. I can lose my temper at the drop of a heart. And I took my my son for his driving test. Uh, His driving test at a test centre. I drive in, and I got there 10 minutes early. So We got there plenty of time. Pull up in a car parking space and we're sat waiting and this car comes in and there's a test that's just finished. And the guy who's the test examiner, he he bollocks us for being parked in this parking space. I don't realise it's for their cars. (laughs) Mm. So that was it. The red mist come down. And I give him both barrels, right? So I give it him and he backs off. He must think, right, lunatic, this guy. <laughs> so we then walk into the uh, test centre. I'm sat with my son, waiting for him to go for his test. And the office door hands opens about 15 minutes later. It's this guy who have just bollocked outside, taking my son for his test. Did he pass? Yeah, he did. I was but, for <laughs> but imagine how I felt. Because <laughs> yeah. he, he went my son's name. And I looked at him and I thought... I thought I'd ruined it for him. Mm. But that is how I how I could be. And, uh, you know, there's many times where I could quite easily have gone and kill myself. And, and, you know, I, what have I done wrong? I haven't done anything wrong. I did the job they wanted me to do. I got the results. And yet, that doesn't mean anything. And when you get Shay on, you know, there's 20 years difference between me and him in the police. I was told at the end, you've been a guinea pig. Yeah, you first want to go through the system, it won't happen to anybody else. I've got that on tape where they said that to me. Two different individuals in in the higher echelons of GMP who said that. And uh Shea, twenty years later, they've done the same to him. And if if you when his book comes out and you read it and you compare it with mine, it mirrors it. Well. Everything. And how he got treated.
2: History repeating itself. Oh, I and mean, it shouldn't happen though, should it? Not twenty years. It
0: it's because you've got people at the top who don't know what they're doing. And, uh, you know, I should have been able to uh, complete my time as an undercover officer and then got promoted and use my expertise to pass on to others. But they didn't do that. Yeah. And they're, and they're willing to throw you under the bus just because of uh, this, this what it, as it was then, this system with masons in the police. Now they look after one another. They'll never admit to that, obviously. Will it ever be corrected? Or is it always just going to keep going? Well... Uh, you know, it's been going on for years and years, hasn't it? And, and like I say, I've no I've no hang-up with masons, per se. My neighbour is one. And I can understand it in business because you, you want to uh, uh, network and get your business going. So I can understand that. But, you know, they tried and tried in the past to get uh, a register uh, for police police officers to register if they're masons and they refuse to do it. Mm. And now it's gone uh, saying it's against the Europe, uh, Court of European Rights to 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 do that. So they can't make them do it. And, and it's all the way up to the top, isn't it? There's uh, 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 judges, right up to the legal system. And what about Cyril Smith? He was a Mason. And the, the allegation is he was uh, protected uh, right up to the end. Hillsborough, the match commander on the day, big grandmaster in the Masons. They got officers' statements altered. Was well, Savile a Mason? Who? Jimmy Stat- Savile, I'm yeah. not sure about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he, he had his feet so well. He under he was. He was. Con- he had a
1: a, a police. Uh, he did a lunch for the police, didn't he? Every week. Oh yeah, week?
0: He, was, he was, and he was protected by police officers. He's probably protected yeah, by Masons. Now, now, very now, whether least. he was a Mason or not, I yeah. don't know. But uh, you know, Cyril Smith, unbelievable when you see what he did. Oh, obscene, you know, obscene. Unbelievable. Big old predator. Yeah. Uh, for years, he's got all the you know, all the kids' homes. And he used to say, he used to say to the kids, "Big man's here." Oh And you wait till you see what this guy looks like. He was about oh. thirty stone. Yeah, lived with his mum. Always lived with his mum up to his mum dying. Fucking so um. lives and uh, unbelievable. <laughs> Sorry, John. Yeah. I
2: have problem there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. terrible.
0: Well, yeah. So, has the book helped you then in the interviews? It has. It's uh you know it allows me to get this because uh, it eats away at me still now. You know, I'm talking about it today. It eats away at me, and yeah. uh, and I'll never ever get over it because. I, I, as I see it, haven't fulfilled my career. It's, it was cut short. But
2: doing this book might, must well, have Well, it, it has. It has yeah. a but, you know,
0: it's like everything, isn't it? When, when, when you're a celebrity, I mean, I watched Good Morning Britain this morning and these so-called celebrities, they get on there. Next minute, the book's being publicised. And, and unless you're a celebrity, you don't get that publicity. So I need to get it out there as much as I can. That's the old media. We're the new media. Oh, I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's perhaps stuff I've missed out as well today. But, uh, you know, um, the book has got everything in. Yeah. And what I will reinforce is everything in that book <coughs> is true. And I can back it up now. Bear in mind, it's been out 12 months next month. yeah. I haven't had one libel action against me. Good. For many of these individuals yeah. who I'm talking about. They don't want to cut Who have named. And I'd welcome them come out because I'll prove what you said and what you did. Yeah. You know, and uh, I, what I did was I, I used my, the techniques I used against villains against senior officers in the police.
1: I noticed that. Co- covertly mm-hmm. Everything them. they trained you to, to do, I used against, used against. against. No, I was yeah, thinking yeah, that yeah, when yeah. you were saying it yeah, earlier. Yeah. 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 That, that they, they have happened. created you. <laughs> they, they said to me, mm-hmm. I went to
0: see one boss when I, when I uh, came back to work after being sick. And he said, if we're laying our cards on the table, we said to ourselves, "Why are we getting this monster?" When we heard you were coming here, I mean, what sort of a greeting is that? And mm. something similar was said to Shay when he when he went yeah. to a department, you know, yeah. treat you with contempt. And <laughs> like I said to you before, there's a lot of people who wouldn't do that job. Mm. Uh, yeah, you know, it wouldn't count for nothing. I I could have been better thought of, sat in an admin office, on my backside for thirty years, yeah, doing nothing mm-hmm. and getting paid the same. Yeah, unbelievable.
1: So what do you say to the viewers then who've
0: been watching this for almost three hours now with you? Is it three hours? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to have bored you. (laughs) (laughs) uh, No no more than what I've just said to you, really, to reinforce the fact that everything I've said today is true. Yeah. I I wouldn't be sat here, like I said to David Wilmot at the end, I wouldn't be sat here talking to you today if what I've said isn't true. Mm. That's what I want to take from today. What was the name of your book again? Undercover Policing and the Corrupt Secret Society. Within. Can people message you or follow you on socials? I'm not on there, unfortunately.
1: Okay. So well, we'll get the Amazon link for your book down Great. there. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah.
0: And again, I want to thank you for you know, allowing me to come in today and talk about what I've talked about. It's been absolutely brilliant. Because uh, I've done other things, you know, uh, and, and the all myth. Oh, I did Granada Reports. Mm. Uh, and they wouldn't do anything about the Masons. Of course not. No. It's controlled by them. Right. So, <laughs> so they wouldn't, they wouldn't, There was nothing on yeah, about yeah. that. Uh, I did uh, true spies things for America. That wouldn't touch it. Yeah. So this has been like a breath of fresh air today. Yeah, yeah. We, so we don't cut
1: anything out. We're uncensored. Brilliant. And um, if you've enjoyed watching this podcast today... Undercover Cop Exposes Masonic Conspiracy? I think that's that's going to be the title. (laughs) Let us know in the comments below. And if you want to get the book, that will be down in the description box. Check it out. I know many of you are fascinated by conspiracies about Freemasons, but to hear it firsthand, someone Mm -hmm. who's gone through it. I mean, out of all the people I've talked about the Masons, this is one of the strongest stories i have ever heard, Mm -hmm. how he was actually stonewalled and they tried to destroy him because of that Masonic stronghold in the in the cops. This is this is so powerful; it needs to get out there this information. So, thanks for watching this with us today. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Masons, and do you think that, that they should be eradicated from the police? Is, is that ever possible? Will this continue? And if you do want some organic cotton clothing, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Boob and Jen can assist with that. Link is in the description
0: box the video, um, yeah. So prison f- bump fist Great, bump. Yeah, <laughs> <the> bump <laughs> Thanks, also thinking if this goes pear shake we can form as uh, reformers, right? Said Fred. <laughs> 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 with these, with these bald heads. I'd love
3: one of those hats. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> to. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was really powerful. Yeah, yeah, thank really yeah. you. Thanks, uh, yeah.